0: bunch of dudes were working through back channels pulling resource where we could to get people out of out of afghanistan safely and you
1: were thinking about going over there
0: dude if i could
1: man with stage
0: four cancer (laughs) oh yeah man it's just physically i i knew you know i had to make that assessment i'm like look i could be more of a hindrance because of you know this thing's not tested you know my hip my glute my quad and i had it all and my femur taken out so if i need to carry somebody like i know i can do it but not like i used to be able to do it
1: it in 2018 when they won no uh i mean dude i, I saw people nuts. piss in places i've never seen
0: in my life And philly we'll fans are like again. oakland raiders those two have been at odds like who's the worst fans on the planet <laughs> well <laughs> eagles dude because we had like the first jail right like well, in in a stadium Yeah. So, I mean, that's something to hang your hat on. They threw people off the 700 level. Like, They'll be wearing a Giants jersey, bro, in Philadelphia. Or Cowboys make it worse. That is true. But it was always like a handful
1: of people, you know, like there's, and the whole like drunk Santa thing made no sense because, (laughs) because Santa was, it wasn't the fans. It was him who was drunk. Like when they threw the snowballs at him. Like, Santa was fucked up. And he says it today. He's like, yeah, no, I really deserved it. Like, I was making a scene in front of kids. So Santa did media? Well, no, (laughs) there's a famous video from... The seventies. That's when they got hit with the the uh, people were throwing batteries at Santa. Was it no, no. They, I mean, there might have been batteries in the snowballs. snowballs. But it yeah, was, yeah. No, it was snowballs.
0: But it's because he was fucked up. And they're like, "There's children here. What the fuck? Like, you can't do that. <laughs> so You're Santa Claus. We're gonna throw fuel on the fire. We're gonna we're gonna beat the shit out of Santa in front of all the kids because that's gonna be better. <laughs> like,
2: that's that was the lot. <laughs>
0: Now you have a drunk belligerent Santa getting his ass beat by a bunch of Philadelphians. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll never live that one down. But
1: I'm telling you, man, it's like I try to explain it to people who aren't from here. Obviously, you are. Yeah, we'll get into you, that. So you, you get it. But it's a religion. Like when they won in 2018, I I, I will never see anything like that again. It's yeah. crazy. Crazy. <laughs> but you've had a hell of a journey, my man. Thank you for coming up here today. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. When when I was on the phone with you, got connected through Pete Polgar. So shout out Pete. But when I was on the phone with you for the first time, we talked, and I looked down when we hung up, and it was like two hours and fifty five minutes or something. Yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is gonna be a good podcast. That's that never happens. Like I I really when I'm talking to people on the phone before bringing them in here, I usually like to be quick so that we can just kind of whatever. But there was just so much that you've had going on. So I'm like, this is fine, and I just enjoyed hearing you speak. But we'll get into your full story and, and what you're putting out there these days with, with your message and, and the stuff you got going on. But to start off, can you tell everybody where you're from exactly? <laughs> we kind of just
0: want to that. But where you're from and what your early history in the Army was? Yeah. Yeah, you totally set me up with that because I know you want me to say I'm a reformed Yankee because um, I am. <laughs> so I live in the South, but I was actually born and raised up in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. So it's about 45 minutes north of uh, Philadelphia. So uh, it's good to be back in the area. And um, yeah, I grew up up here. Um, generations of my family have been in Pennsylvania. And um, you know, kind of grew up with my father. Uh, he was in the early days, you know, I always talk about like the formative years for him kind of has a lot of um, impact on me as a young young man. So mm. You know, he, he volunteered during the early days of Vietnam, 60 to 64. He um, enlisted, became an MP. Then he spent the rest of his life in law enforcement, whether that was uh, the police department or 20 years in uh, at the uh, sheriff's department. So mm. I kind of grew up under, under his tutelage. My parents got divorced when I was six. And I kind of transitioned. And uh, I guess it was about... Uh, 9 years old old on my dad raised me by myself. So my my siblings really? and I were all split up. So which How many siblings did you have again? I've got uh an older brother who still lives in the area, uh younger brother who does, and then a uh and my my sister, she's my older uh, sister as well. Mm. So you were living somewhere with mom and it was just you with dad or Yeah, after the divorce um we I I spent like a year, maybe in second grade, I was in West Texas and then Louisiana and kind of bounced around different schools. And then I made a decision to go live with my father, you know, from third grade on. You made that call. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it was kind of a weird, kind of weird situation. So growing up, my other siblings stayed with my mother and then I I stayed with my dad um, the whole time, all the way through high school and when I got out. So, um, we were kind of split up. So it kind of gave me a little bit of chip on my shoulder, you know, like going through a divorce back then, it wasn't as prevalent as it is now, you know, mm. now you talk to most kids, they have, they've been going, gone through a divorce, but in those days, you know, um, you definitely had an impact cause I was so young. I was only like six when they got divorced. So going through that, it was kind of a rocky tumultuous situation, but, um, yeah, um, my dad did. A really good job kind of you know guiding me uh the best he could <laughs> so there's limitations you know being a cop you know I got a, my share of uh, trouble growing up as well and uh really it's the son of law enforcement oh yeah shocker <laughs> 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 yeah no it was good you know I was a good kid I tell everyone you know I was I had a good heart um but academics wasn't my thing mm. I was really excelled in sports which kept me in school and what would um, you play well, I did a little bit of everything, any kind of bald sport. I probably played. Um, I played basketball, football, even though my younger brother who played college football says I'd never played football. <laughs> <laughs> he likes to kind of get a rise. I played, you know, junior high, I did eighth and ninth grade. I played football. But from eighth grade on, I ran uh, three mm. seasons a year. It just, it's just something I, you know, excelled at. Like in eighth grade, you know, I was, I kind of like broke the five minute mile when I was in eighth grade and that kind of- oh, shit
2: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
0: I was like, hey, that's pretty competitive for an eighth grader. Um, so I just continued doing that and grinding, you know, through, it's kind of one of those individual sports that you just have to kind of overcome. You know, I didn't have the most talent, you know, and it kind of translates into where I'm at today, you know, through all the chapters of my life. I just had this like uh, indomitable will, and that's what kind of um, kept me moving, you know. Yeah. And I mean, that's going to be so clear when people
1: really hear about the, the stuff afterwards. But, you know, I guess you had a pretty good recognition when you were young that that maybe the whole college trail, get a job behind a desk wasn't going to be for you. But like, was there a dream when you were 10,
0: 11, like, oh, I want to be in the army or, or in the military? Well, it was kind of <clears throat> I was um like I said, I got in a lot of trouble. and got arrested several times. My, my own father arrested me in high school. What? <laughs> yeah, it took, me to, <laughs> took me to jail. It was actually a a friend of ours um, who was one of my my dad's deputy. He was the first on the scene in the high school. I what got, was the scene? Well, I, I got into a fight in high school. It was no big deal. But I had a, a, a pocket knife on me, you know, at the time. At school? At school. And this is pre-Columbine, all the crazy drama, right? Oh, and yeah. it wasn't unusual. I, you know, I always carried a a knife. I still do. Like, I've been carrying a knife for... But I happened to get into a fight, and another kid brought a gun to school. And they thought we were linked up. I didn't even know this kid. He was a kind of a vote tech student. And he had bad intentions, for sure. So when the cops came, I was like, well, I don't see what the big deal is, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I just got a knife. (laughs) And then I saw, you know, my dad's uh, deputy, who used to come over to the house. You know, we used to have parties, like uh, barbecues or whatever. So I I knew all the the deputies that go see my dad at work. And as soon as I looked at him, he goes, man, what did you do? (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, you're not going to call my dad, my old man, are you? And he's like, yeah, I got to call your old man. And that was worse than getting arrested for sure. So my dad actually came to school in a sheriff's car, handcuffed me and took me down to uh, the well local, it was just a holding cell. And I had to go to court. I was out of school. It was just all, you know. Holy shit. And I looked back and I went, man, I put my dad through all this drama. Like, there's many more layers. You know, I got a lot of little instances, which could have been a career ender for me, you know. And luckily, people gave me a second chance, you know. Because if I didn't have that second chance, I don't know where my life would have went. I I suspect it would have went off the rails, you know, um, at an early age. I was kind of at a crossroads where... I'm either gonna go do the right thing or the wrong thing and um, so that kind of leads into my dad gave me three options essentially you know Um, he's like look you're 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 a smart kid but you're you're not academically you're just not performing so if you want to go to school you can pay for it um Hmm. or you can go get a job or you can join the military like I did so my dumb ass goes down to the MEPS like the next day, and I enlisted for six years, right? Six years. So I came home right afterwards. You right don't a- usually have to enlist that long, do you? No. The recruiter saw me coming like a mile away, man. I was like the poster child of like, you know, the, I got screwed by a recruiter story because I didn't know. There was no Google. There was not, there was not a lot of um, uh, reference points for me besides talking to an actual recruiter. And all they care about is their numbers. right? So like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to be an airborne ranger. I had no idea what that meant, per se. I knew Why'd was, you say it? <laughs> well, I knew I wanted to do something like kind of... I wanted to do something that was super challenging, right? And I wanted to be tested because I had this like little bit of a chip on my shoulder. You know, I wanted to prove myself and um, and do something that was uh, super challenging. So they were like, yeah, everyone qualified. So I... When I enlisted, I I ended up in aviation. I had no clue. I go to basic training, go to AIT. They're like, you're going to be working on ah uh, 64 attack helicopters. You're going to be like, a, you know, the furthest thing away from special operations. Were you going to be a pilot, I take it? Um, no, we were thinking- working on electrical systems and armament. Like, mm. you know, we'd go in the field and like load them up with like Hellfire missiles and things like that and I knew right away, I was like, this is not what I joined the military to do, man. I don't want to be, I want to be kicking doors and, you know, how do I get the ranger school? And they're like, you can't go to ranger school, man. You're not a combat MOS. Your job Mm -hmm. is not infantry. Ergo, you can't go to ranger school, but you can go try out to become a green beret. And I was like, well, that seems even better so can you that-
1: explain to people who aren't familiar with it just i, I think this is a great opportunity to do this because these terms that the military will often just talk about passively because you understand all this like green beret special forces stuff like that you mentioned army ranger where is where does green beret fit into things like what types of things do they do and and how do they select people to get into that
0: yeah so we call it either SF or a Green Beret, kind of synonymous, right? So Special Forces in the Army is generally considered your your Green Berets. And in the Navy, kind of an equivalent, you have the SEAL teams, okay. right? So we both have to go through extensive um, selection processes and rigorous training to um, to go through the, the course. And then when you go through um, – so I went through in '95 and – the first thing you have to do is go through a special forces assessment and selection course in North Carolina. So I was living in Germany at the time and all I knew what they told me was long as you don't quit, you have a very high probability that you're going to succeed and get selected to move on to start the training course. Mm. So I had no other reference points. I didn't have a lot of the experience that most guys did have at the time. Like there was guys coming from infantry. They had they knew all the small unit tactics and how to move and fire teams. And I had no reference point, no land navigation skills. So I went in green Mm. and you know, what they're really trying to weed out is they don't want individuals. They want team players, but you know, when you're going through selections, it's totally an individual sport. And the number one thing is they want to make sure that um, you have the right, you're, you're trainable and you have, kind of this um it's more of a mentality, I guess um this that never never fucking quit mentality, right because they give you tons of opportunity from start to finish, you can quit at any time, what's the training like like what does it consist of um at that time, you know when you go to selection, you know you might start off doing uh like you know one day they might just tell you to run, and I was a runner, so I was running um, sub 10 minute mile or two mile time, Mm. even in high school. So I was a really good runner, but you have no, no idea how far you're going to run. Is it a 12 mile run or is it a two mile run? And sometimes you'll be running with a ruck, you know, in boots and they'll just say go. And you're like, well, how far? They're like, until I tell you to stop. Mm. So there's a lot of mind tricks to that. Right. So... I think a lot of people get discouraged, especially if you're not a runner or either less fit it's you're you're just going and it could be a two mile run or a 12 mile mile run and then there's a you know a week where you're working with a team under these crazy you're not sleeping, you're not eating and you're constantly moving and they might put you in a leadership role to put additional stress on you and to see how you you perform under all these different mm. stressors which kind of emulates what it's like in a combat environment. You might not be sleeping. You might not be eating. You're going to be under a lot of stress. You're still going to have to shoot, move, and communicate with your teammates. And some people, you know, thrive in those environments, and other people kind of wilt, you know? so I How think many that, guys were you with? So when I went to selection, I think it was over, slightly, slightly over 300 started. Mm. I think it was like 320-something. And I think by the end it was like... Uh, less than 60 for this selection. And then you'll have to go through phase one, which is small unit tactics. That's usually a month you're in the woods doing raids and ambushes mm. with a, you know, with in, uh, kind of a mock up uh, ODA or A team. So like 12 members, you'll be doing like raids and ambushes. And then you go to phase two and you'll learn your actual job. So I was a weapons sergeant. So we'd have to learn how to employ different. Weapon systems from small arms all the way up to, you know, surface to surface to air missiles, and foreign and U.S. When, when you say employ for people, what do you mean by that? So you need to know how to clean, service, shoot, and uh, operate pretty much any kind of small arms rifles, mm. um, any anything that that, that shoots. We're, we're kind of responsible for being able to employ and training other people like that could be indigenous people could be in Iraq and Afghanistan as a force multiplier you're training these guys up utilizing what weapons they have commonly available so um but yeah it's it's a long course i mean you're in training for a year and a half two years wow um yep selection phase 1 phase 2 then phase 3 is robin sage and then you can you go to language school for 6 months Which is 9 to 5, you're learning a language depending on what regions you might be deployed to. So for me, thankfully, I was a French speaker. (laughs) I didn't get Arabic, thank God. (laughs) And then uh, you kind of move on from there. Wait, they thought they were going to deploy you to France, and that was going to be like your (laughs) ultimate place as a special forces guy? Well, I was in third special forces group, and at the time, um, it was either um, Arabic—we spent a lot of time in North Africa— Mm. So there's a lot of French speakers there. Like most of the countries that I was in, uh French, French was like a close primary language um uh, because it was colonized by the are we French. We talking like Algeria, Morocco, some of those. Yeah, most of the north there's a lot of French speakers. Um interesting. And um then Arabic the same thing. So you might be teaching students, you know, half of them are uh speaking Arabic. The other half might be French speakers, and then there could be other dialects. So it gets—it's pretty challenging to, to train people um, when you're not totally proficient in 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 the language. You know, it's a lot too. Like, there's
1: a reason they teach kids when they're so little to become like bilingual, if they grow up in a bilingual household or something, it's because they can pick it up. The older you get, the harder it is to do that. So whenever I hear guys like you, whether it be from a military background or like an agency background or something, learning languages, like when you're 25 or whatever, or 20, something like that, it's, it's, you know, you guys make it sound easy. Like, Oh, I had to do this over six, nine months or whatever. <laughs>
0: That's hard. Yeah. It's definitely tough. Thankfully, I took Spanish, you know, growing up in Latin. I, um, I had three years of Spanish in, in, in high school. Um, so that kind of gave me a little bit of because it's, it's, you know, when you talk, att- you know. Romance language. Any of the romance yeah. languages, you have that Latin root. Makes it a little bit easier. But, yeah, I'm sure if I watched me in language school today, I'd probably be laughing <laughs> at some of the shenanigans. Can you still speak it? <laughs> not not well. Um, I can understand better than I can speak. Mm. Um, and I can read better than I can speak. Did you ever get to a point where you could think in it? Uh, not, not quite. I don't think I was quite that proficient. Um, the problem with me is I've been exposed to so many different languages. I blend them all together. Mm. Spanish, French, Latin. Um, it's like I've been in all these different countries, so I kind of mold all these things together. And it's hard to switch sometimes, depending on who I'm talking to. Yeah, I'm always amazed
1: by that, too, when you have the people who speak, like, six languages or whatever, and they can go like that from one to the other. And I'm like, how do you – like, I can't wire that in my head, you know what I mean? I'm
0: trying to master English still, (laughs) you know what I mean? So I want to make no mistake and claim that I'm, like, a super proficient French speaker. Don't call me. (laughs) Get a Rosetta Stone. You do pretty well with English. I'll give you that for sure. But – So you you did that
1: for a year and a half, two years, like the full length of that. And then they sent you, was it to North Africa right away? Or did you like go over to some base like Germany or something first? No, I,
2: um, so... Hey guys, got five quick things for you this week. One, please share this episode around with your friends. Two... As always, please be sure to subscribe to YouTube if you haven't already subscribed. Three, please leave a like and comment on the video. That is a huge, huge help in the algorithm. Four, over on Spotify or Apple, please leave a five-star review. That's a huge help over on those platforms, and I appreciate everyone who has done that already. And finally, five, the Patreon is almost ready. We are going to be launching in the next week or two, so please keep your eyes out, as that is going to hopefully be a very, very good driver to be able to fund this show. Thank you.
0: When I started out, I had to go to airborne school first before I started the whole process. As soon as I finished selection, I went back to Germany. I left, I kind of closed down that part of my career in the military. And then I was um, sent to Fort Bragg for special forces training Mm. um, to the special forces um, uh, Q course or qualification course. On the way there, I had to go to airborne school because, you know, everybody has to be airborne qualified just before you even go to start the Q course. We had to go through airborne school. So I went through that and then I started the Q course and I I was at Bragg until really about 2000, like the end of 99 going into 2000 is when I transitioned out um, after doing a uh, couple deployments to Africa. Oh, so you did? I was going to say you did do actual deployments. Though. Yeah, yeah. So, so I went to my do? A team. My A team was um, a lot, lot older than some other groups. So by that I mean there was more guys in their like 30s to the late 30s, mm. and I was I was young. I went through as I was like 25 years old, um, which for us is young. So in the SEAL teams, you can go through buds. You, there's 18, 19 year olds that can go through buds. It's kind um, of
1: rare, though, right? It's usually they're, yeah,
0: they're they're younger guys. A lot of guys try out when they're pretty pretty young in their young twenties.
1: That's what I was gonna say. It's usually know? like right after college. I thought
0: a we're long. a little bit older historically. Um, when I was in, you had to be at least an E four to try out, meaning you know you've kind of progressed up the the food chain as far as rank. You know, you don't have to be a sergeant, but you have to be at least a corporal or a specialist just to go to selection. So I had to wait until. That was kind of why I had to wait a little bit longer, which was good because it allowed me to mature as well. I wasn't mm-hmm. quite ready at the time. Um, you know, when I was like 21, I, I would have struggled because it's it's a, it's a lot of mental. Yeah. It's a, it's a mental game, um, the not old, just physical. The older I get, the more I have an intense appreciation
1: for those who enlist just in the military period when they're like 18 or something because I'm like – holy shit me and everybody i know was a fucking moron when we were 18 years old you know like we couldn't you know we we a lot i at least a lot of my friends and and me like we were independent and you know we're had no problem transitioning to college and things like that worked but this is a whole you know this is life and death shit this is like higher calling this is this is seeing the world in a whole new light, depending on, where well, anywhere you go, period. But, like, especially depending on where you go, if it's, like, a serious war-torn area. It's just, I can't even imagine 18-year-old me having to do that. And I do believe I would have figured it out, but the idea of, like, volunteering to do it, I'm like, like oh, yeah, that's that's what I'm going to go do. That is an, a crazy fucking thing to me.
0: Yeah, and looking back, you know, it's just, I, I just wanted um Yeah, it was, it's kind of interesting because right when I got in, I started kind of working, you know, PT or physical fitness and physical training came fairly easy to me um, because I was always in good shape. I started working out when I was six, seven years old, Mm. you know, through martial arts or whatever sport or running or whatever it was. So I had that under my belt, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of like I tell people about, um, talent like i didn't have any talent and you know i don't know if you've ever seen the movie steve prefontaine he was a runner back in the day but it was kind of interesting it's like you know you're not big you're not you're not you're not strong enough you're not fast enough you know might not be the most athletically gifted person but that's what i think those types of people like we're kind of talking about rocky right Mm -hmm. um there's there's people that grind and people that are super talented in sports or anything, it could be professionally, some of those people don't have to work quite as hard that people that don't have that talent do. So sometimes when you have a lot of talent, you don't have to go in that deep water, like the deep water, Mm -hmm. meaning the struggle, like the mental challenge when you're pushed to the brink to break. And I like to use the analogy with MMA fighters, right? So you could take a really highly skilled... MMA fighter in the UFC. And then you'll take a dog, you know, a guy who just likes to get grimy and drag people like uh, uh, Nate Diaz is a good example. Mm, he has yeah. great cardio. Yeah. But that dude He's is a, a dog. dog. yeah, And he'll pull people into that deep water that are way more talented than him, stronger than him, more athletically gifted. And he'll. you can watch them break. And I think there's something to be said like, You know, it's those people that just know how to, they're not afraid to put themselves in those situation and go into those deep waters. And they're the types of people that I really, that fascinate me, you know, because I kind of, I'm kind of one of those guys like, you know, I'm very familiar with discomfort and pain and, you know, just, just grime, you know, of like uh, overcoming adversity. And that's where I excel, you know, so I might Clearly. might be working with working out with somebody who's way stronger than me or more gifted, but it's like putting those extra rounds in, and you can see who really wants it. Kind of like the Iraqi analogy, yeah. And that's what's fascinating with as I kind of reflect now that I'm getting older.
1: Yeah, I, I think for a career like that, like in the military, I'm I'm convinced that it's not like everyone who's ever joined the military has that ability. There's guys who do and guys who don't, but For jobs like that, it's almost like even if they fall into it as like – as in maybe even like you a little bit. Like, oh, well, that's one of my options here, so let's just take that option. Careers like that will find the people who have those innate qualities, that that dog, that ability to have intensive mental toughness at all times. And military is, I think, a phenomenal example. There's other – industries or careers, I should say, that, that certainly have that. You could say that about martial artists for sure as well. But, you know, I, I'm i always so fascinated by how people are able to, it's not the word I want to use right now, but it's going to get the job done because I can't think of the the right word, but like how they're able to compartmentalize and then execute. You know, like when you're dealing with going through a hail of bullets to get to, a place you got to be you know some sort of objective that you got to take you know there, there's guys who can do that and there's guys who can't and the guys who can have an ability to put aside the whole concept of the depth of death when they do that and just focus on i'm at point a we're going to get to point a point b and that's what's going to happen yeah. you know and some right. guys give their lives doing it because the law of averages says that's going to happen and that's a very sobering reality but you know, a guy like you just speaking with you on the way here from the airport this morning, it's like, and speaking with you on the phone last month, it's like, you, you definitely have that black and white, so to speak, objective mindset.
0: Yeah, and, and I just heard, um, kind of on that point, I just heard Goggins on Rogan the other day, and he kind of kind of got into that whole whole topic you know, like he was kind of commenting, uh, on, I don't know, he's running like a 240 mile race. Right. And Mm. you know, he's like in that 62 hour time period, I forget, I'm, I'm probably bastardizing this, but he's like, when he's running like an ultra marathon or 240 mile race over 62 hours, I mean, some of these events he's showing up hurt on the, on the starting line. Oh yeah. So you already have that doubt. And that's that inner bitch in your head. It's already creeping in when you're at the, going to the starting lines, but he goes out and does it. And what you learn, and what I'm trying to share with people is like, through adversity, there's opportunity for a significant amount of growth. Yes. And Goggins talks about it like, he was talking about that 62 hours is like the equivalent of seven years of life, mm. of understanding the dark. That's where things grow things don't grow in the light they grow in the dark it's like when you're going through the deepest darkest struggles it's what you do with that information when you come out the other side is what will define you and how you handle that adversity and it's an opportunity to learn and I think most people are such in that fight such in that struggle that they miss that opportunity to go what did what what did I learn coming out of it? what did I learned about myself and what what didn't I like and what am I going to fix Yes. So I think it's that that part to me is like fascinating on the whole process of, you know, growth. It's it's actually really applicable in
1: in a in another way, I'll say, to like the state of society as well. It just makes me think about that. You talk about like not being able to, to grow in comfort, so to speak. To me, when I look out at the division we have and how people speak to each other, especially online, which is the best example because you get to hide behind a keyboard doing it. I think it is all drawn from people just being complacent. And and I'm I'm focused on this country right now, like in America. I won't speak for other places right now, but for right here, it's like this is kind of an awful thing to say in a way, but... We have never been invaded in this country since it was founded, and it really shows. I mean, we're technically, like, kind of invaded for the war 1812, but you get the point. We have never been really invaded, and it shows because people just have this idea that, like, you know, you can go to the Wawa and get your coffee, and no matter what's going on, that's always going to be there. And knock on what it has, and knock on will it will. But that complacency is then making people think that, like— well, I can say whatever I want and do whatever I want, which you can. But therefore, I can I can be a dick to other people and and talk shit on every single thing about this country. Sometimes, depending on who you are, and not have any perspective of anything else, and just assume that I know everything. Does that make sense? It's kind of a yeah, it makes of purpose saying it. In
0: it no, I mean it makes perfect sense. Weak times, <laughs> or you know, we're in good yeah. times, create weak men. It's that whole. That's where we're at in the uh, evolution of those four quadrants. Right. And we're, we have a bunch of weak leaders and weak individuals. And unfortunately, usually something bad has to happen to do that reset. And we're kind of, unfortunately, I think we're getting closer and closer to a higher probability of something happening, whether that's the market just crashes and it's financially a distressful time for people, or it could be not only economic, it could be, uh, it could be a military, you know, to your point, it could be, um, uh, another conflict or war. And that's where people are going to have to step it back up. And, um, that's what we're, we're, I think we're all witnessing right now. It's the first time in my life I've ever seen it. Um, the last three years have just been mind boggling. And that's why I focus on my, all my attention on bettering the country and individuals through serving others, you know, mm. and it's super rewarding It's still, you know, the, the aggressive part of me wants to do something more, you know, like, you know, kind of, I'd love to spend more time and talk to young men coming up. Um, you know, if I could be a little bit more articulate in my messaging, I think I have some like, you know, sound bites for the young men coming up because it's a confusing time for young men, young women, doesn't matter, um, to grow up because of the cultures. There's such a rapid shift culturally that it's i mean how do you keep up with that if you're a teenager or a teenage boy how do you know you know how to act or how you're supposed to act in this in our culture now it's super confusing um, what, what do you mean like with some of the well i think if you talk about you know the hot button topics you know it could be uh toxic masculinity mm. right so you throw that term out and if you're a young man and you like to play football and then people go well you can't play football because that you're a toxic young man you're you're just doing these brute brutish things and you're dumb you're trying to dominate and um maybe the person's just interested in playing football because you know he grew up around the sport and loves it right and that's okay you know like and i think you know that just opens the door for so much confusion um you know on um uh, especially youth coming up, there's, uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to get in all the hot top, topic butts because there's so many, I mean, people know what they are, but um, yeah, I think, I think that that just throws fuel on the fire with social media and all the other, the negative, you know, like we we're talking about previously, algorithms drive, you know, yes. engagement. And it's fueled on the, you know, obviously the responses, Negativity and hatred fuels more engagement than good, good feeling stuff. So, you know, how do you not fall victim into that? And um, just like you said, keyboard warriors, you know, it, whatever I say to somebody on a keyboard, I will 100% yes. come say it to your face. Yes. But I don't waste my time trying to bring other people down. I try to build them up. You know, that's where I spend my time is on the positive attributes. If I don't like somebody, I just don't follow them. Like, I'm not going to spend time and try to, like, hey, this guy's a clown, you know? It's like, all right, that's not helping anything, right? Well, it's a good point because the problem is
1: a lot of people, especially younger, who came up in this era, so to speak, they live in a world where, you know, think of teenagers right now, they live in a world where you can be instantly in a micro way connected to anybody including the most famous people or whatever so when you want to say something you have access to do it and because their friends do it then they feel like they can and then once they do it once they'll do it twice and then four times and then 16 times and it just continues it continues and what they don't realize or seem to not realize is that it's not just them saying these things to other people they become self-fulfilling prophecy like ideas that they carry with them about the world so if you are out there every day saying fuck you die in the comments to somebody right to whoever it is all these different people you're gonna start it's not like you necessarily gonna be the person who actually like thinks that when you wake up in the morning but you're gonna you're gonna take on that vibe you're gonna take on that tear down vibe instead of build up and that's gonna affect like if you have dreams or want to do something or go after something that's gonna affect your ability to even approach that Yourself because you're going to be defeatist in a lot of ways because you're like, well, they couldn't do it and they're fucking assholes, so I I can't either,
0: whatever. No, yeah, that's 100%. And there's so much online's dangers all the way around the board. Like, I think, you know, I'll give you two examples just off the top of my head. One, like, say, pornography for young men, Mm -hmm. young girls, doesn't matter, whatever. Um, But, (laughs) you know, When I was growing up, you had to trade Playboys, man. Like, yeah, yeah growing up in the Stone Age, we did not have, all, you know, Pornhub. You had to work so, for your <laughs> porn. <laughs> so you'd have to go out there, beg, borrow, and barter with your buddies. Like, hey, my my dad, he's got some <laughs> old Playboys from up in the attic. And then you, you, you kind of work these drug deals out. And then you're like, ah, oh, you know, you had uh. to, it sounds silly, right? But now it's like anything that you can possibly think of in you just put into Google search, Google image, it'll show up. And kids are subjected to that at an extremely young age, man. And it jacks up everything when it comes to uh, how they perceive relationships, women, you know, it's just one little thing, you know? And it, it's, 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 um, it's just a danger. It's, it's dangerous for kids. Like we we, had, we were raising an 18 year old. We didn't let him have, uh, his iPhone until he was like 13 or 14 and he gave us so much grief, but even then it was still restricted until he was like 16 years old. Yeah. You know, I was like, Hey man, we had teen safe on there. I could read his text messages and you know, it depends. Everybody parents, parents differently. But for us it was like, like, yeah, he's going to see stuff, but let's try to educate him on the, the, the dangers of Mm. some of this stuff and whatever he's going to do when he's a, a, you know, grown ass man is going to be up to him. But, I don't want to condone it. And, you know, I'm not here to be a buddy. I'm here to be a good role model as a father figure, you know, to a young man that's growing up and, you know, people get a lot of grief for that, you know, (laughs) you don't have an iPhone like fully enabled and you're 10. Like, well, yeah, I guess,
1: I guess guess the, yeah the the other, the other kids definitely are like that. I'm I'm sure. But I think in the long run, he will probably thank you for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the goal, right? Like, and the, the second the second one is just, you know, information's flowing at, at, at just such a rapid rate, yes. more than we can process the information. So whenever you see something that's a hot-button topic that pops up on Instagram, TikTok, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever social media platform, as soon as it goes out, people don't even read or fact-check. And yes. it's I'm a fairly— Intelligent human being, but it's hard for me to fact check. I've been called out before. I posted something online before that wasn't true. I took it down, you know, because I was like, oh, I fact checked this, but two different yeah. sources, but they were both wrong. So that disinformation, that's actually true disinformation, is there's people that put all this information out there simply to get more follows, more likes, more engagement. And at the end of the day, it's crazy. It's wreaking havoc on society because yes. people don't do the due diligence, and the way it used to be when I was growing up back in the Stone Age. Again, you'd have the old timers would go out. To, everybody got the paper back in the day, so you'd read it, and then on the weekends, the old timers would get together at like a diner or something for breakfast, right, <laughs> yep. and be like, "Rumph, rumph, yeah, what's this about?" Yeah, and that's how they talked about it, and they communicated with peers, or and they would. Create like inf- this. Yeah, one-on-one. Yeah. On one. yeah. They would actually have conversations with words. And now it's just like, as soon as they just flash a photo, you get fired up, and you just—it's you just, all tribal, man. Everybody's like, you got to be in this camp or that camp. Yes. And yes. I think that's dangerous, too. You know, I was telling you, like, I no longer call myself one thing or another. I say, man, I'm an independent thinker. I have a brain. I'm not going to vote for somebody just because— they're in a certain party, you know. It depends. It depends if they represent something that I have. I feel like I have a strong value for. If they represent it, unfortunately, in our society right now, we have a bunch. Of, it's dumb and it's voting for dumb and dumber. Yes. Like we have better people in the United States that could run this country. One hundred and ten percent. Who wants to do of good people? Nobody. Though, who wants to do that job? There's a couple dudes that I know that just ran for Congress. Um, Eli Crane, um, he just got uh, elected as a congressman in Arizona. Uh, Marcus Luttrell's brother, Morgan, out in uh, Texas. There's some dudes that are doing it for like holistic reasons like, hey, man, I I serve this country. I don't like where I see things, and I want to make a difference. But that's so few and far between. If you look at most people, it's for power, influence. And if they just become part of the mechanism— I mean, there's people. I think in the state of Pennsylvania, there were some people voted in that were dead or something. You know, recently. Really? You know, I, didn't I mean, you don't even have to be alive, and people are going to vote for that person based on name recognition. No, <laughs> well, no research,
1: bro. When I went into the ballot a month ago, or two months ago, whatever it was, I actually looked like really took a minute because it wasn't crowded in there at the time. went had a good time, so I wasn't making people wait or anything. And I took a look through. I think on this one. There was only, for my district, there was only maybe like seven positions. It wasn't like an enormous ballot this time. But I just was, I'm like, read the, the names of like the jobs, like what they're doing. And before I even read the name of the person who I don't know on most of these things, I'm like, what? Who's walking into this ballot right now or into this poll and voting and has any idea what that job does? Because right. I don't, right. I have no clue. Yeah. I don't know if it, I don't know if they're in charge of the trash or the fucking you know newspaper. <laughs> I don't know. They, maybe none of the above. But yet I'm voting on this person right now, and I didn't vote for either on any position or whatever. So it made my life easier. But I'm thinking of the people who are going to make the binary choice, and I'm like, what? How can you even blame someone for whatever they're going to pick right now? You can't because we live in this world where the the people who are in that world, that little club right there, they make as much of this stuff uh, – is this a word? Un- undecipherable or whatever? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I might have made that up. But they, they make it impossible to understand so that people just get sick of it and, and move on and go to the next you know, major public fight that's on social media over something. And if you want a great example of that, look no farther than what they name these bills. You know, they may try to trick you with something simple, call something the Patriot Act, you know, because it's like, oh, how can you vote against that? <laughs> it's got to right? be good. It's uh, be good. A patriot. <laughs> but then there's other ones where, <laughs> right. they'll, where they'll name it, although that might have even had a long name itself, too. They just nicknamed it that. I don't remember. But there's a lot of bills where it's called the but, 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 word I never heard of, word I never heard of, word I never heard of. And you don't know what's in it. And that's because they get to be in their little chamber down in D.C. and get to say, oh, look at all these dumbasses. They don't even know what we're doing right now. And they're the ones creating the laws. Yeah, for the common person, that's a that's a wild thing to think about.
0: It all comes down to money. Um, yes, if if you don't have, I mean, we just had the ma- massive runoff in Georgia for for Senate. Oh we, yeah, you, know, you live Atlanta, right? Yeah, yeah. So we had that whole situation similar to yours up here with um, Fetterman and Oz. Like, you're just amazed at the uh, qual the qualifications of candidates. Yeah. <laughs> I was like. Listen, I don't care where anybody sits politically, but I'm pretty sure, I love me some Herschel Walker as an athlete, but I'm pretty sure I can beat him in a game of chess, right? You know, hey man, if you're out there, Herschel Walker, you want to play a game of chess and put it on film, I'll be your guy. And I'm not very good at it. But pretty sure I could beat you when he started talking <laughs> about the air, <laughs> the
1: air in China. And I'm just it's like, blowing over there. <laughs> it's just like, and then it's the best we got in our country, bro. The worst is you hear like four no. four people in the audience like, hell yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh no, that was probably me. But a lot, of... <laughs> my southern accent. <laughs> a lot of a lot of people in there were even like crickets, though. Where you're like, what did what did he just say? Like that's. We're voting for this guy i mean you know that thought process is coming because it's just it seems like it's almost like a joke now
0: like they get the candidates get worse and worse well i mean what number one thing people need to remember when it comes to politics is the politicians represent us the people it's supposed to that's what the narrative needs to change it, when you go through all these political arenas and and these, I mean, they're spectacles. I mean, like, let's call it what it is. It's like reality TV. Um, they work for us. They they represent the people. The people are the ones in control, and that's the way this country was formed. Yes. And it's all twisted right now. I think people are just like they're in all of all these politicians. And I'm like, look, they they represent. They're our voice. So if you don't like what you see, get out and vote. And you know. The, the biggest challenge is how do you, how do you get better candidates in, in office? And unfortunately you need tons of money, these super PACs and everything else that back these candidates. I mean, I'd see a hundred in the course of an hour or two hour show, maybe like 50 to a hundred ads for that runoff. And I'm like, how much money are these guys spending? And it's like who, and you can see who has the deeper pockets. Yeah. And that's not, that's not a good indication of like qualification. So anyway,
1: no money. Yeah, money wins the day for sure. But back back to you and everything we we have been talking about your training at Q School and all that coming back to Fort Bragg, and then you had mentioned quickly before we got off it that you did deploy to North Africa. So wh- where did you go and and what did you do? And this is late nineties, I take it.
0: Yeah. So late nineties, um, my first trip. Well, both both trips are North Africa. So like in the. I spent most of my time in Chad, um, which is kind of borders south of Libya. You know, for reference. Okay. And um, you know, when we when I first deployed, it was kind of a little bit of a rude awakening because you know I was trying to figure out you know where I fit on an ODA and um, on a what on, on a special forces A team at the detachment or our team. So we have typically twelve members. And um, my first trip, we punched out to, uh, I think we were doing, it was either demining or counter poaching was the first. Really? I can't remember which one I did first because it's all kind of a gray at this point. Was that in southern Chad with like counter poaching? Because um, isn't a lot of it desert? We did a lot of the training in uh, in N'Djamino or Chad for counter poaching. And then we went down to the Central African Republic Mm. and we trained up students how to basically engage or defeat the poachers because the poachers were slaughtering elephants at like such a huge, well, anything, you know, there was a lot of the black market was um, rampant at that time and they were just slaughtering elephants, you know, and a bunch of other, on these game preserves, the poachers would come in They kill an elephant for like 50 bucks or whatever. And you're just like, holy cow, man. This is... uh... But the military had you doing this. Yeah, because they were killing um, game wardens, uh, the people that worked on the preserves, and also some of the military that were trying to protect, Mm. you know, and augment. They were just getting owned. So we had to teach, you know, um, counter poaching and like, okay, how do we combat these guys and how do we engage them? So we train train our students up and then, you know, work with them to actually go fight with poachers and things like that.
1: My friend Ryan Tate, who is on this podcast, he founded an organization called Vet Paul, And he's a former Marine. He served in Japan and then was in both Afghanistan and then Iraq. And when he left, he worked for the State Department and found out while he was working at the State Department in the U.S. about the poaching wars in Africa and was so blown away that he picked up and fucking moved there
0: holy shit it rocked my world the first one was an elephant laying on a a tar road no face isis in africa up to 40 percent of their operations terrorist activities are funded off the illegal trade of elephants and rhinos they are poaching animals to kill humans we
2: arrested the poaching network responsible for 18,000 unaccounted elephants in one year. If they catch a park ranger, they will torture them. They'll kill their family, everything. The poachers. Yep. And so what they do,
1: and it's, it's in a capacity where they don't do it on behalf of the U.S. government. They work directly with the African governments in several countries over there. But he has all veterans from the United States who previously served. They come over there and they they man thousands of miles of land and cover yeah, it's and protect like the wild the west man.
0: It's like keep, it, keep that mic close. By yeah, way. it's um those areas are just crazy. I mean, you'll see. I didn't even know half the damn animals, and I, I've been into nature. You know, as far as like I'm pretty well read when it comes to uh flora fauna animals all that you know so i get over there i'm like what is that it looks like a dlt they're like what's what's a dlt i'm like that's a deer-like thing it's like looking at a deer that weighs 700 pounds yeah. you know and you know lions and that part was really cool but you know when you when you pull up and you just see elephant skulls lined up you know like a yeah. hundred of them in a row and you're like dang yeah these guys are decimating you know what's left in uh, the central african republic or congo and you know, those areas that are somewhat untouched. So yeah, that was, um that was a pretty good, pretty good, um as far as op, that wasn't uh, too bad. But then, you know, we got into demining. So I had to go to demining school and we were trying to help um, demine some of the areas. So Libya, there's a trade route between Chad and um, Libya in North Africa, and it's super heavily mined. And um, so we actually had to, like, our students that we, we actually had to instruct, it was just a variety of a hodgepodge. I mean, one guy's wearing flip-flops. The next guy's wearing, like, a 7-Eleven shirt. The other guy's wearing, like, BDU top and, you know, dress pants. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just, it's a total hodgepodge of people. And, you know, some are Arabic, some are French speakers. And it's just, it's kind of crazy. But, and I'll give you a for instance. So, like, when I started doing... You know, leading one of my classes as like the new guys with my second deployment, we had to do mine identification. So I'm showing a square anti-tank mine and they're stackable. So, you know, there might be like two foot by two foot square. And I'm like, hey, has anybody ever seen one of these? And one of my students raises his hand and I'm like, well, where do you see it? He's like, at my house. I'm like, why do you have an anti-tank mine? <laughs> He's like... We sit on them at the dinner table. I swear to God, the stuff you, you can't make this stuff up. So they had like maybe four or five anti-tank mines stacked because they're meant to stack and their pressure detonated. It depends. And they're sitting on there for fucking are Yeah. And they get, when they're in the desert, you know, the, the uh, um, explosives, it gets hot and cold and they crystallize. They become sometimes less stable or more stable Holy depending on the shit. environment. And I'm like, bro, you guys are sitting around the <laughs> dinner room table, um, sitting on stackable anti tank mines. So it's just kind of like, you're kind of like in the Stone Age. And um, and you said this is like, ni- am I right on my late timeline? 90s. This is
1: like 98. 98? Yeah, it was around 98. So this is like right after Princess Diana died. Yeah, yeah, because it was- she was huge into this. She was out there because the, this the, it was just blowing
0: up kids left and right. Yeah, the mines is crazy. Yeah, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a uh, you know you watch movies with the EOD guys. Um, I am not an explosives expert. I don't want to go walking in the minefields anymore after <laughs> seeing some <laughs> some of the some of that craziness. But um, yeah, so at, at the time, long story short, with those two deployments, I just didn't like where you know special operations, like especially SF at the time, Green Berets were doing a lot of foreign internal defense. They call it FID missions. So you're more or less training and, you know, the counter poaching, demining. So the mission set isn't, wasn't really what I was looking to do, but I already had re enlisted my second time and I was get, coming up for a third that would have put me over 10, uh, 10 years. So I might as well stay in at that point. And so I had a heart to heart with my team sergeant. I said, Hey man, you know, things just aren't, you know the op tempo is not exactly what where i'd like it to be you know i'd prefer to be kicking doors doing really cool mm. cool guy stuff so i thought about trying some other opportunities If you know if i decided to stay in but i made the decision to get out because i was getting ready for my 3rd reenlistment. and um this is 99 yeah it was in the fall of 99 going into 2000 but did they i'm, I'm just curious for our
1: history out there to just see what some of the attitudes were this is Everyone knew what Al Qaeda was once nine eleven happened and a lot of people weren't say nearly as familiar with it before then. But in I think maybe it was like ninety eight you had the embassy bombing
0: and stuff. This yeah, was so happening
1: in Africa. Were you I involved was, around any of that?
0: Yeah, actually I was in country when the when uh Dar Slam uh when the embassies um got hit, we were I think we were one of the only US military groups in North Africa at the time when the the bombings occurred. And that was the first time I heard of uh, Osama bin Laden. Mm. So he was in Sudan at the time. And he actually put kind of some orders out knowing that we were next door. We were, I think we're a country to the uh, west of Sudan. And, you know, we had to go like a higher threat posture after those bombings because he said any Americans were going to put a hit out, you know, on uh, U.S. service members that are in Africa. And so I got home and I kept the Time magazine because they were like, hey, this guy is in Sudan. He's threatening. You know, we only had like seven dudes in country at the time. There was only seven of us. So it wasn't like we had a big contingent. We didn't have military, you know, backing. Sure. So, so it kind of changed. That kind of changed the viewpoint. And then when 9-11 happened and, you know, so on, I was like, oh, kind of kind of starting to, you know, that was just kind of like reading the tea leaves a little bit back then. Didn't know how significant, you know, Osama bin Laden was going to be um, back then in the late 90s. So when you left, because it wasn't in, things weren't on the footing
1: that, that you had expected or wanted it to be, it wasn't like you were thinking in your head, yo... Like this Al Qaeda stuff and this this vacuum in the Middle East that's dragging into Africa as well is a big deal and like I want to be around for this. You weren't, it was no there. man. Had
0: I known, I would have stayed in hundred <laughs> percent. Like yeah. it, it just wasn't in the cards though. I guess. Um, had I guess I would have been a failed military analyst because I just didn't see a twenty-year war occurring. Um, several years after I got out, and um. But, you know, I ultimately made the decision, really was about predestination. I didn't like the fact that I was going to be over 10. You know, if I um, re-enlisted a third time, I'm going to be over 10 years. I'm stuck in the military. I'm going to ride it out. At that time, there was no armed conflict. So it was like, you know, I know when I get out, I'm going to be this rank. I'm going to be making this much money. And at that time, Mm -hmm. you didn't have all the variabilities that I like, the uncertainties of like, that's what kind of draws me to the allure there. There is a risk inherent risk. So predestination gets a little murky, mm. you know, at that point, I didn't want to have a scripted, uh, adult, you know, life in my thirties going into my, you know, to be 40 and be like, ah, oh, everything's scripted. So I made the decision to get out, uh, came back to Pennsylvania and enrolled in a physician assistant school. I actually did community college for about a year and a half. And then I went to a university and, you know while i was in school 9 11 occurred so i was actually in a barber shop uh getting ready to take a biology test and it was like eight whatever the the first tower went down around eight thirty, or so in the morning and i was in the barbershop shop and it was on live tv and i see the first plane burn into the uh, twin towers and i was like whoa and right off the bat i i, I was pretty certain that it wasn't an accident but I wasn't a hundred percent sure, and I was like, "Well, I, I still got to go f- take this freaking test." So I get back in my car and I'm driving to f- towards Philadelphia to take this biology test of all things, and I'm listening to Howard Stern on the radio, like oh, live, listening to that broadcast. Yeah, man, and he's looking out his window and he's like, "Oh, a second plane burned in." And I turned right around, dude. I I left. I was like, I knew right then. I'm actually getting goosebumps, but I was like. Oh no! I'm got to go right back to my house because we didn't know everything started to unfold between the uh, the Pentagon and uh, Flight 93. All those things started occurring, and I was like, "How big is this going to get?" And so I knew we were going to go to war. I mean, I was certain there's going to be repercussions for something this this big. So I called my uh, team sergeant up. And I said, "Hey, man, I want to get back in the SF. What do I got to do?" And he goes, "Man, same day." Uh, it was probably like the next day. Cause I was still trying to figure out, you know, you're kind of like, what's, what's happening here with this event. And, uh, you know, I was with my dad and my grandmother to watching this. My grandmother was like 98 years old or something like that. And it was just unfortunate she had to witness this stuff. But, um, so yeah, uh, told, told my team sergeant, you know, and he's like, look, Grenada, Panama and the first Gulf war, they're all over super quick before you even get back in, it Could be over, you know, and he gave me something to think about, and he's like, Yeah, it's going to be a long process, man. You got to go through, you know, everything all the over the process. No, just like you know, you have to re enlist, and you know, I probably wouldn't go back to the same, you know, to third group, I could be going to fifth group or wherever, and it was just too, too, too long, lengthy of a process, so. I ended up talking to a buddy of mine, my buddy, Ron, um, who's been a fixture in my life for 26 years we went through SF together. And then, um, he called me up and he was like, Hey bro, you know, OGA or the, the agency's hiring, you know, um, for GRS and agency CIA. Yeah. So they, the CIA was kind of scrambling to put human intelligence sources in, Iraq and Afghanistan, because we had kind of a gap at that time, uh, with human intelligence, like on the ground, boots on the ground. So, you know, I was like, well, what do I got to do? And I said, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm definitely game. I'm definitely interested in like, what do I got to do? Well, I want to do it now. So I went through like this lengthy vetting process where, you know, you have to fill out an SF-86, which is, Essentially, an in depth background, you know, to get your clearance. Had to go through like, you know, your, your standard. What sh- is this right after 9 11? Um, well, it probably took me about a year plus. So I was still enrolled in school. Okay. But I was going through this vetting process. Like, I had to fill out a bunch of paperwork for the federal government, they had to have the FBI come to my house to do a background check. And then you had to go to like shooting, shooting schools, driving schools, physical fitness, you know, all that kind of stuff. So when all that was said and done, um, we did a workup and we were part of the first like really 30 guys. But I think it was like for me, I don't know if there's any other guys before us, but we were we uh, infilled into Iraq just after the invasion. So it was like the summer of 03 is when we were like basically boots on the ground in Iraq it was like the summer of summer of uh, 03
1: all right so let me make sure i understand this all correctly you get in after going through all the stuff in the government like you were talking about background check that takes a while it takes you through 2002 in 2003 now you're you're hired and you mention obviously going on the ground in Iraq in, in the summer but what was it? Were you officially like hired by the CIA, or were you hired by a private company that was contracted by the CIA? Why you want to set me up like
0: that, man? I'm sorry. I can't answer that question. <laughs> um, well, I'll talk about our, you know our background. So it was kind of a interesting. What was interesting about it is you did have a lot of guys that had you know either SF or SEAL backgrounds. So most dudes had military backgrounds um especially for the work that we were doing at the time um so predominantly mostly seals and sf but there was other outliers like people with different backgrounds um it was few and far between but um they took this like this motley crew and kind of trained everybody up and we all had different backgrounds so like when you're clearing rooms like cqb things like that um It was slightly different for each group. And um, so it was a little weird kind of being thrust into a situation where you had guys from, you know, Army guys, Navy guys working together hand in hand. It was kind of like a little bit unusual at the time. So it was kind of unconventional. You're saying because the way you guys went about things was different. Well, operationally, we had similar tactics, but there's all, you know, each group has a slight variation that might make, you know, their secret sauce a little bit better, you know, for what they do. And, um, so I thought it was interesting that, you know, you took a variety, it was kind of like SF, you know, if you take like a, a special forces, a team or, you know, a seal platoon, it's almost all synonymous. Like in the sense that you'll have your, the different personality traits, like you might have one guy from Oklahoma, the next guy's from New York city. One dude's into like country you know you know and he'll go by his call sign will be country because he's like super you know big belt buckle hat the whole nine he's like i grew up on a farm and then you'll get like the other dude is from new york city you know he's like from an urban environment never seen a horse ever (laughs) and then all of a sudden you're in afghanistan and you have to ride them and you know like an sf unit like uh um, which has happened, and you you take these dudes, I mean, the country guy's like, I got this, man. This is what you got to do. <laughs> and then the city guy's like, uh, the dude, fuck? that is a large dog. Um, I'm not getting on that thing. <laughs> so it's just kind of crazy, man. Um, and that's what makes complimentary, you know, when you have teams with a variety of backgrounds that tends to make the unit stronger, right? So you might have one guy who's like a moto you know, or uh, you know, he's really into racing uh, vehicles and he's like the mechanic guy. He has a mechanical background. So when a vehicle goes down, you just gotta rely on all these other skill sets mm-hmm. that people have or their interests. And they pay dividends on when you have like a highly functional uh team, the team that has to perform at a high level, and you have it's not all group think, not everybody has the same background. There's a lot of variety. And so we were thrust in that environment, you know, in the early days in Iraq where we kind of had this similar. Um, but now you have guys from different groups in the military um, that are all kind of working together in an environment.
1: Did you have any thoughts on going into it? I mean, hindsight's so 2020 20 now, but, you know, when you initially wanted to do this and go back, it's you on the drive back towards home listening to Howard Stern as buildings are coming down. And-
0: yeah, man, dude, that was a turning point for me. 9-11 was like 9-12, and to see, like, um, I know we talked it on the on the car ride of the studio. I said, man, I'll never want to fuck another 9-11, 100%. Um, but the 9 nine twelve, you know, it's almost cliche yeah. at this point for people that do remember 9-11. The day after 9-11, man, I remember walking down the street, and you just bump into another dude. Nothing you, have, you don't even have common backgrounds didn't matter man people were like hey what's up brother you know yeah it was like I got you man like everybody was so unified like you it was just American flags everywhere people were just kind of like amped up but there was a lot of positive that came out of it with the the country that seemed super unified and pissed but you th- the point being
1: though when this is when that's happening and people are unified around this issue the issue is al qaeda attacked us we're at war and at the time it's like okay we're going to afghanistan where they're harboring them but then you spend 2002 going through all this background yeah. to get back in and by the time you're roped up to go now they're like oh by the way we're going to iraq yeah no idea like what the fuck is going on thought going through your mind? no
0: not at all man i was like hey wherever you send me i'll fucking go mm. um just, just tell me where I'm needed. Um, I was just a cog in the wheel, you know. Um, I, I just knew that I wanted to be a part of the fight. I wanted to take the fight overseas so people in this country didn't have to go through one. Mm. Uh, the biggest fear, even before nine eleven, was always that terror plots are going to happen in the United States, and we've stopped countless ones um, that probably some, some of them will never be public knowledge. But to see that when nine eleven occurred, I never want to see that again. Yeah. Um, I don't want to see it. I don't think anybody would, you know, it's just so, it's just crazy. Um, you're, you know, t- attacking innocents, combatants. you know, guys are just going into work one day and then suddenly everything just changes on a dime. So I thought, you know, the reason I was put on this planet is, uh, uh, you know, I, I always say, When I got out of the military, I felt like a Ronin, and even when I got out of contracting for GRS, I felt like a Ronin, you know, I was like a samurai with no master, you know, Mm. and I just didn't get the purpose, money didn't drive me, Um, you know, it wasn't about how much power, influence, or money that I I made running defense companies after I, I finished, I just felt like there was a higher calling and a purpose that I wasn't fulfilling, and Protecting other people has always been one of those things that I, I was just naturally draw, drawn to. And when I was working for GRS, you know, whoever's in the backseat seat, your principal... What does GRS stand for? Uh, global Response um, So Staff. So basically what GRS does historically is they basically protect, uh, well, I'll just say, U.S. government assets in austere environments. So anywhere there's a conflict zone... It's super high threat. Um, you know, an easy, an easy analogy for people that are tuning in is like the movie 13 Hours. You know, they were all GRS guys. Mm. Um, Benghazi. Yep. So in Benghazi, uh, in the movie 13 Hours, that was, you know, uh, people that were working in that capacity as a GRS uh, either staff or, or contract. And, you know, basically you're just – Protecting people so they can do their job, whether that's, you know, collecting intelligence or because sometimes there'll be, you know, analysts involved as well. But typically you're um, case officers that are going to be collecting intelligence overseas.
1: Okay. So you were, I mean, this, this does sound minus some of the physical nature of like going into war-torn areas and and having missions and stuff like this, this does sound like a lot different type of work than what you were doing in Special
0: Forces, no? Yeah, it was it's more EP or executive protection. Um, There's a big element of that. So your job is to protect your principal. The person that you're protecting first and foremost is you don't ever want to lose a principal or your protectee. Um, Above and beyond that, your job is not to get into firefights. So if somebody attacks you, typically if you're running an armored vehicle, number one, you want to get off the X, get out of the kill zone, get your package out of that environment as quickly as possible. Um, Whereas in special operations, if you get into it, you're giving it all back, right? Mm. The only time you're going to give it back is if you have vehicles go down and you got to fight your way out, which happens quite a bit um you know you might get hit by an IED and lose a vehicle um and then you the know, the enemy opens up with a small arms fire well if you can't fit if you can't cross load you lost too many vehicles usually you know you could be running two or four vehicle in a convoy if you lose too many vehicles then you gotta fight your way out yeah and that's a that's not a situation you want to be in because you're posture you could be running low viz where you're not kitted up with you know we were always kitted up um meaning we had lots of ammo lots of water but you know you're not running food you're not planning to be out for three days fighting right so you're planning to get back either that night or one or two days if you don't have qrf or quick reactionary force come and assist you so yeah, it's um comp- quite different than the military Um, as far as, like, the tactics are the same. So if you get blown up, if you're in an ambush, you're in an ambush. Um, But if you're doing EP work in a high-threat environment or executive protection and you get, um, you know, say people just start shooting at you, you just keep driving on and get the hell out of there.
1: How many, like, how it's big... It's very odd. How <laughs> big a team are you usually working in? For one asset to protect, maybe.
0: Well, it, it really depends. It depends on the principle. because I've did five years of uh, EP work. Most recently, I just that was my last career. I got back into high risk protection for celebrities and a listers and things like that. Over here, mostly. Yeah, all in the continent of the United right. States, but I also did you know stuff overseas too, as needed. Yeah. You know, so somebody was going to, you know, Malaysia or wherever um you, much easier work than the stuff you were talking it, about. it's a ton of planning man you just have to those type of gigs you just have to be very well you got to know your routes yes. in and out um a lot of logistics you just got to make sure everything's wired tight because your job is to make everything smooth like the bad guys don't exist you know yep. but when they come out you got to be prepared to fight you know if needed so but when you were doing
1: it in iraq it, I take it, you obviously can't say who you're protecting and stuff like that, but the types of people you'd be protecting would be like that guy, Paul Bremer, who was in charge of Iraq over there is like the key yeah. diplomat, stuff like that, you're saying.
0: Yeah, well, Bremer had his own detail. Um, I, I knew some of the dudes on Bremer's Brimmer, detail, but... That was the, ladies and gentlemen, we got him, guy. Yeah. And um, so he had a full, full entourage when, you know... You're not running low vis with a guy like that. If he's leaving the compound, you're running like, you know, you're going high. You're going to be high visibility. Um, you got to try.
1: What does that mean for people at home who don't understand?
0: Well, he was a pretty big target, so he obviously had a lot of people on him. We would run low vis, meaning low visibility operations, where we would try to be more indigenous to the region. Like, so when we're driving down the road, you don't want to be noticed, right? And one of the biggest problems that we had at the time was our vehicles. So in 03, it wasn't too bad. Uh, We were running around a lot of soft skin vehicles, like pickup trucks, Mm. dudes sitting in the back just to get the point A to point B. And then doing ops, we were in 03 running around in commercially unarmored vehicles. So at that time there was, it was it wasn't the threat profile wasn't as bad for just being coming coming off the invasion after like a month like it was still i think the dust was settling from the invasion so you know we weren't getting ambushed every day it was few and far between in 03 um, and thankfully because we didn't have armored vehicles at that time but what tra- what happened in the beginning in the spring of 04 we were getting hit all the time So Mm. it was not uncommon for dudes getting like stitched up with 200 rounds on a vehicle. And thankfully, the U.S. government, there's pros and cons. They acquired all these um, commercially armored vehicles. And at the time, it was just like, hey, if you guys have armored vehicles and you make manufacturing in the United States, sell them to us now because we have emergent, like emergent threat, you know, overseas, we need to get them all over there. So when I tell you how ridiculous this sounds, like I drove an armored H2 Hummer in Iraq with somebody very important down Khadija Expressway, one of the most, you know, route Irish for any military guys that listen. It was the most dangerous road on the in, in the world. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm driving a silver H2 Hummer in post, you know, the, the post invasion. It was like a maybe like five months after the post-invasion when we got that thing. I was like, this is atrocious. So what that was is a big magnet. So we are driving like um, Suburbans, Chevy Suburbans in Iraq, H2 Hummers, um, you know, G500s, Mercedes uh, G-Wagons, 7 Series BMWs. Right. They had, some had great armor packages, but you freaking needed them because every time you took that out the front gate, when they see three Suburbans running in in a freaking convoy, like, the, sta- that's like the state department, <laughs> yeah. they're like, they're bad. You know, yeah. Hey, those guys, we need to blow them up. So we started getting hit in 04 right before Fallujah. It just, you know, in, uh, I guess it would be like March, April, May. It just progressively got worse and worse. Well, um, what was it when you got there, though, in the summer of 03,
1: Obviously, prior to Fallujah, it was. What was hot. it like?
0: <laughs> well, it was that goes so hot.
1: But like, what was the uh. environment like? Was it still low key, like during the honeymoon, mission accomplished phase, where there wasn't a fuck ton of violence and the the sectarian stuff hadn't totally blown up yet?
0: Yeah, it was more or less. Keep
1: i th- talking. I'm just fixing the light. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, I think what it was was, um, I think the dust was just settling after the invasion, and really, I think when we the debathification of the country, when we took the baths, you know, we basically we created a vacuum. We fired a bunch of high-powered individuals, government, military, and the dust was just settling off of you know doing that like we put Paul Bremer in charge we, we started firing a bunch of the the headshed from Saddam's re- regime because Saddam
1: was a Ba'athist
0: yeah right? and then you had all these groups you had the Sunnis the Shiites and it was very tribal and um and that always makes it difficult is you know there's not, it's that whole divided we fall mentality. There was all these different subgroups. And I think what happened is um, in the beginning of 04, that dust settled and people were starting to feel, hey man, I don't have a freaking job now. Like, what am I going to do? I am a military, you know, I'm I'm a general or, you know, I was in this really cush job and now I'm unemployed. So, you know, naturally they just, they were rising up you know cuz effectively they didn't
1: when they pushed out all the bathus if i'm underst- if i remember this correctly that's pretty much it was like they they bremer and, and the state department made an order i guess through bush that was like no one who was a member of the bath party and therefore basically no one who was a sunni <laughs> could hold a government position, and so that – Saddam had been a Sunni technically. Obviously it was, it was Saddam Hussein it was crazy, but he was within the Sunni Shiite world. He was a Sunni, so now you had all the Shiites getting government positions, and let's just call it what it is. It's handed off by the imperialist American over here. That's what their propaganda is going to say with that, and so all the Sunnis then get pissed off, and the power vacuum leads to a guy like al Zakawi, who – just wreaked havoc as, as a terrorist ad, across the country for until his death in 06.
0: Yeah, it was, um, there's so many different like micro like factors that, that played into the big scheme. Um, but I think leadership, I mean, to me, it's kind of like when you have a tribal area, you got to maintain order mm-hmm. some way, some semblance of order and discipline within the, the region that you're, if you're, you know, occupying is so difficult um yeah i don't i don't necessarily agree with our doctrine where you're gonna occupy for 20 years i don't i think that's a uh fool's errand we're not good at it you sure. know it's well i mean who is it's unconventional yeah. warfare is very yeah. difficult to, to fight but yeah i think in the in the spring of 04 just everything just went wide open man we would you know it was not uncommon for to get hit once a day you know and we're on the road every day so you know, our operations were, like, going into Ramadi, going into Missoula, going into uh, Sadar City. Like, mm. with I went into Sadar City with one uh, one vehicle once, me and my buddy. And I'm like, you know, they had 10,000 strong at that point. And do it was bonkers. That? Yeah, we're just, you know, two gringos driving down, <laughs> you know, hey, we pull up to a checkpoint. I'm like, I hope these guys are good guys. And, um, in hindsight, it was pretty crazy. Some of the, you know, you have to know the roads inside and out. There was no map data. Um, so it was very much like the wild west, but that's what I loved about it. It was like beg, borrow, steal. All that mattered was getting, conducting operations and make them successful and keep, keeping people safe. It's pretty simple. And then, you know, it was like that work hard, play hard mentality. But, um, the op tempo was freaking high, man. Like there wasn't like you know, sometimes you're doing one, two, three, or three ops a day. And so what would an op consist of? Like getting one,
1: one high value target from one place to another pretty much?
0: Uh, Well, I can't really get into details like, you know, from a legal perspective, but the, uh, it it could be a a variety of different things. It could be, um, transporting your principal to, you know, a meeting with somebody, you know, uh, an asset. And you know, you have to do the reconnaissance, you have to do all the pre planning, make sure we, you know, um, you also got to look at uh different IED attempts, like so, you got to be up on the current situation. Sometimes just getting out of where we were stationed, um, when we first rolled in in 03, we took over the airport, Baghdad is by app, um, Baghdad International Airport. So there was like a hangar there and we Your just Your team did? Yeah. So we just slept there for like the first I don't know month or two. And then How many
1: guys, how many guys did that?
0: Oh man, there was a bunch of people there. Um I don't remember the numbers, but it was it was a decent sized group. It wasn't like military big. You know, it was only like maybe I don't know, I can't throw a number out, maybe like 100 people or something like that. Took over the entire Baghdad airport. Yeah, like when we rolled in, there was military already they just rolled through. So we just kind of like, hey, this is where I'm going to sleep. <laughs> it's pretty weird. Okay,
1: wait a second. I'm I'm just trying to, as a total layman here who has no concept of this, I'm trying to understand so everyone out there can. You get dropped on the ground in the summer of 03, as we said, and one of the first things you do is you take the Baghdad airport. So it hadn't been taken before that. Well, the military
0: had taken it, and then they left it. So it's unsecured at that point, right? So is anyone there? Are there any planes flying? Yeah, there, there? was there were some um other contingents still there, like different government agencies. There's like, you know, a couple dudes from here, a couple dudes from there. So we still had to make sure every the area was secure to set up like, you know, our infrastructure to run operations. And what we were waiting on is there was a adjacent military base called Camp Slayer. It was like maybe a half a mile down the road. And we eventually took that over and we set up before the military even came back into this camp. It was one of Saddam's palaces and it was all mm-hmm. walled in. So we set up there and then the military, you know, they set up, I can't remember if it was before or after us, but um, yeah, it was pretty much the wild west. It was like, you just claim your, your territory, you know? So, but uh, I'm just, I'm trying to, like, relate this to, like, imagine
1: if it was here, like, what it would be like. So, you and I were at Philadelphia International Airport today. Is this pretty much, and I would imagine the Baghdad airport isn't quite that big, but no. is this pretty much like... <laughs> Not even like, you, where we would pull up to the exit there to get off, there is now, it's like, I am legend
0: around there, yeah, pretty much? pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty similar. It was... uh it was just like um, survival of the fittest, you know? It and when like, when you say people were there, though, this is the part I didn't understand. Well, I can't like, remember all the details of like, man, that was so long ago.
1: Um, are they chilling in the concourse or like in an office? Like, what nah, are they doing?
0: It was just this big central building that we stayed at that we referenced and called Biap. And uh, um, there were different, you know, military and... Uh, other gov- government agencies that were kind of in that area, but it wasn't a big contingent of people at, by any stretch. <laughs> and what what? So, like, do you have a? Is there a general there, or is it just like a few guys? No, we just. I can't get into all the specifics on the. This, yeah, stop military camp. Yeah, because yeah. I, I don't want to get you know myself in legal trouble. <laughs> um. But um, so I don't want to get into the detail of like all the specifics of like okay. who was there and it's not really relevant. But um, yeah, the, the the bottom line, it was the Wild West, man. Like 03 and 04 in Iraq, where it was, you know, you had that the, the, lull, the, the calm before the storm in 03 and it was hot. <laughs> did i mention that what are we talking like 110 humid, dude it was 130 i think One, 130. one 125 130 it was not one of the hottest summers when i got off the plane i had to drive an armored vehicle from i had to drive it off the aircraft to wherever we we're going i had no weapons i'm in no idea what i'm like what i'm fucking doing right because it's like hey we're gonna go from here to here we had no maps there's no accurate data we had Garmin's and stuff like that back in the day, but there was no map data, so it was like you're kind of going in blind initially. You had no, you know, no uh, familiarization or or you're with the area, and so it's like, dude, I get in this thing, I start it up, and the freaking air conditioner didn't work in the suburban. Oh, no. Bro, I drank two gallons of water, I'm not even exaggerating, within 30 minutes. I was sitting in this thing baking. It was probably about 125 degrees oh. actual temperature. You can like die sitting in something yeah, like dude. that for And I'm a long. sweater. For those of you don't know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big sweater. <laughs> so I I was dying in this thing just to, like, that was my, you're like, hey, what was it like an 03? I'm like, it was freaking hot, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was kind of cool you know you're just figuring stuff out it was kind of like you're a freshman but then you skip the uh you know junior and sophomore year you won't write the you know it's like oh now you're uh getting ready to graduate boy and 04 was uh graduation but this is also
1: in i'm trying to think of the little i know but iraq i guess was a little different because in afghanistan when they went in you had an unprecedented at the time CIA paramilitary run operation with military supporting it in Iraq you had a military operation with the CIA also in a paramilitary capacity and stuff supporting it so it wasn't like it wasn't like Afghanistan in the sense that the CIA was completely in charge and was very focused and tactical this was like a full blown invasion so when you get dropped in there it's called GRS that was mm-hmm. the name of it you said okay when when the GRS team gets dropped in there, you are now officially contracted by the agency so are you how coordinated are you with in what you're doing with your ops with the military on the ground versus you're just kind of working with the agency and they're saying here's what we need to get done and just
0: do it uh we'd work together it depends on the, the depends on the situation and the and the op sometimes we would work hand in hand with with the military mm. and you know More so at that time were the tier one elements, um, meaning, you know, well, I don't want to get into all the details, of, but it really, it it just depended on what what, what was the requirement at the time. But there was many times where we would be working directly with the military, but most of the time from a day to day, like standard ops, when it wasn't something like super critical, um, we would just be out there. We were supporting ourselves. So if we got blown up, we got shot up, the people that are coming from you is going to be other GRS guys. It's not going to be the military. We had no—unless um, it was like a serious, long, prolonged, multi-day type of situation, um, you're not going to get military support. Mm. And, you know, there was times where we had civilian aircraft backing us up, throwing us ammo or— um, it just really depends on on the uh, on the situation back then, but most of the time we would have to respond to ourselves. We were our own QRF. So mm. when you're out doing an op, there's other dudes all kitted up, and if shit goes down, they get punched out to respond to you. If they got shot up, you send whatever else you got, and then oh, you hope the military would get involved after that. But we weren't always connected, you know, tethered to them.
1: But as Very as rarely a, as a contractor with the agency. You know, you're talking about all this, basically like high level war zone executive protection and and travel planning and things like that. But and again, don't say what what you can't say because you did. And just full disclosure, till recently, you had you still had top secret clearance and everything. So right. there's some stuff you can't talk about. But was there any element of espionage activity or intelligence gathering activity that you were personally a part of?
0: I won't comment on that one either. <laughs> you trying to get me arrested, man. <laughs> like, I'm like I'm stage 4, I got cancer, don't come after me the government. <laughs> I love you guys. Um I mean, we're we were involved in a lot of different stuff, man. There was different groups and you know, when you say paramilitary, there's just kind of a lot of that gives you a lot of latitude um on things from an un, that are typically deemed unconventional. So Every day was unconventional, man. Like, to be honest with you, like when I did EP work in the States and then I juxtapose or or do a comparison compared to times in Iraq, Afghanistan, Palestine, they're completely freaking different because, you know, you could be driving on an op in those combat environments. Explosives are super easy to get a hold of. It's not unlikely you're going to get hit by an RPG. It's not unlikely you're going to get hit by an IED. It's not unlikely that a belt-fed machine gun is going to open up on you going from point A to point B with your principal. In the States or areas that aren't worn torn, it's very difficult to procure explosives. Um, They're a dime a dozen over there. I mean, you just go walk down the street, you can find a 155 round and stick some c4 in it and bring it to a cell phone and blow a vehicle up it's super easy you don't have to be a rocket science to do this kind of stuff um and they got more brazen you know as time went on foreign fighters came into the country in 04 that was another thing that the time gave people like hey let's go fight the americans so Mm -hmm. i think my viewpoint is there were some outside organizations obviously you know you know all the buzzwords when it comes to uh elements that were prevalent in the time, but they would come from Iran or where, it doesn't matter, Syria, Afghanistan. I mean, they could come from anywhere to to, to pick up the fight, you know? So that's why I think, you know, there's a bunch of different reasons why things picked up in 04. But for me, I'm just an operator. You know, at the end of the day, back then, I didn't really care about the geopolitical structure and, like, why this? I mean, you know, you kind of... You have your finger on the pulse when you're on the ground. You're talking to people. You kind of get the vibe. And you can kind of feel the the shift. Like, people were really friendly in 04 or 03. Then in 04, it just started to tie. Mm. You just got a different sense. You wouldn't see people out on the road. So, like, when you're driving through a market-type area, in 03, you might see people everywhere. But then when when the shit starts hitting the fan, when you're driving down the road, you got to be dialed into like, yo why is this market like there's one yeah. person on the street oh shit, they're fixing the freaking you know hit us so you're really dialed into like on the minutia but also politically you kind of get a better sense in some politicians because you're talking politics with these guys and trying to understand what makes them tick because one day they're your friend the next day they could be your enemy. It's their
1: country. You're You're there. You're a visitor, you know? Yeah. And I I think, and guys who were over there who had to follow mission orders to be over there, that's not their fault, but they're then stuck there to clean up the mess or try to keep things tenable. And to me, again, in hindsight, especially, it was an impossible job, you know, to expect that from our, our. frontline well we did it. we did a
0: good job we had no no we never lost a principle man that's something i'm always proud wow. of man i've never lost the principle been sh- freaking blown up shot up <laughs> but at the end of the day that's all that's important it wasn't whether we if one of us gets injured or god forbid killed that's part of the job man that's why we're doing what we're doing like i never hesitated a second like there was people like that I was protecting at times where you're like, man, if you're on the street, I wouldn't even talk to you. You're such a <laughs> dick bag. But it didn't matter to me, man. I was like, I might not like you or believe, you know, have the same belief structure. You know, they're talking, you know, so it'd be crazy. Some of the situation would blow your mind. What you you would overhear, but at the like, end of the day. Like what? Or can you not say? Well, I mean, some of it could be like political stuff, you know, it's like, well, you know, talking shit about the president or whatever. And I'm like, dude, I'm over here like, you know, we just got hit like 9-11 just two years ago. And I'm still kind of in that vibe of like, Mm. hey man, I'm not here. My job is not to to second guess, you know, during the invasion, whether this is a a just war or not. Uh, Like at the end of the day, I have a job to do. Like time will tell, you know, um, on that stuff. I wasn't, that wasn't my concern at at the moment. I just wanted. You know, I was like, hey, there, there's people trying to kill people um, that I'm protecting. And my job is to either, you know, keep them alive or dispatch those other dudes because they shouldn't be out killing people anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a basic tenet. Yeah. Like. But more than just the vibe,
1: though, too, you, you're, and by vibe, I mean like what you were talking about with talking with people and getting a feel and sense on the ground and seeing how things were shifting 0-3 to 0-4 and then into 0-5 and stuff. Like obviously you get that, but with a top secret clearance and working with, with on as a contractor for the CIA, like I'd imagine you're getting read in on intelligence. Oh right? yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, so you know what's going down in this country. Yeah, I mean,
0: of course. Like and you know, coming from special forces kinda help helped out, you know, because if you're if you're a Green Beret you got to win hearts and minds, right? Like your job's not there just to like, you know, destroy things. And you know, your job is to kind of make a connection with the people, get a better understanding, and help, have them help us, you know, and us to help them. So I think you know, coming from that environment, it was, it was it was easy to talk to some of the people. You know, I felt bad for some of them. You know, some of the good. There's a lot of smart. A lot of doctors and things that we were talking yeah. to, high level people, very smart and very dialed in on politically and economically. And, you know, they they got it all and they put their lives on the line to support our country, um, providing information at times. And sometimes you see those people get killed, you know, and it's like, yeah. man, that is like, you know. When you're an operator, all you can do is be like, hey, bro, we cannot go to their house in broad daylight. You're going to get those people killed. Yeah. And then when the higher-ups don't listen to those things and somebody does get killed, it feels like you're kind of responsible. But at the end of the day, I'm like, no, we're going to be in charge when it comes to operational security. You guys aren't going to tell us how to do that. You guys can do your job, but we're going to get you there safely and we're going to keep your assets alive. You know, So there's some frustration, but... um. Yeah, I was like kind of trying to get the vibe on the ground because all that intelligence is good for something, you know. It, it helps you understand. And God forbid if you're ever captured, <laughs> you kind of know. You got to know what's going on in the country, right? Yeah, for so, sure. And how long were you there in Iraq? Um, was there from summer 03 through the, through the fall. I can't remember when I went home. Maybe for Christmas, I think. Then I went back in, uh, I think maybe it was January or February of And I was there, uh, I think, half the year. Because then I punched out to Afghanistan in the end of 2004, going into 2005.
1: Was that your call or orders to go there?
0: Yeah, actually, I wanted to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wanted to... to, to I wanted to do it, you know, do as much as I could and kind of get a sense of where the value is, you know, for what, what I had to offer, which is, you know, I'm a, I'm a Neanderthal. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh. But, no, I just wanted to, you know, I hadn't been to Afghanistan at that point, and I was like, well, there's mountains and it's cold because Iraq is hot. <laughs> and uh, so I can't remember. I, I know I was there... Um, half the year in '04 towards the trail end, and then most of '05 I did a couple trips um, over what was there. the
1: big difference? I mean obviously
0: <laughs> the climate and the geography way, way
1: different between the two but you know, you had a chance to see both of these places at like some prime times of when this war was really really hot and going on and like I often when I talk with guys, they'll talk about how, it was it was almost forget just the geography and everything. Like it was it was kind of opposite. It was entirely different objectives and opposite situations. But like, what was your experience with Afghanistan?
0: Well, I mean, the first thing was I, I was there. I know it was in the winter because it was cold as hell. <laughs> and uh, I went from one extreme to the other. I was like, oh, let me go from super hot desert to like <laughs> the you know to Kabul where there's like you know mountains and they're super rugged. So. I guess one of the main differences, like if you talk it from an economic perspective, if you looked at Iraq when I was there, one of the first things I noticed was like, man, they actually have things to trade. They've got oil, they've Mm -hmm. got dates, they've got water, like they have a future because they have resource and they, you know, they have the people there are educated. There was, there was, uh, that was probably the first thing. Then you, 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 when I transitioned to Afghanistan, I'm like, okay, they have dirt. (laughs) <laughs> they have opium, they've got dirt, and they've got guns. <laughs> I mean, and it's super tribal. Well, at that point,
1: I'm just wondering, like, for obviously we know how this turned out 20 years later, but yeah,
0: I'm not telling anything. Nobody doesn't know, I guess. But.
1: Were Were we at when you're there in o four o five? Could you see it already starting to not go the right way because
0: resources have been pulled from there? No, I mean, it was still early, you know, like. We were trying to establish, and um, it was a little more stability. When I was there, I didn't get blown up. I didn't get shot up, um, surprisingly, because I just seem like I'm a magnet to <laughs> people. Are like you're like a bullet magnet, man. Wherever you go, <laughs> like people want to ride with me because they're like, dude, Fuck. I want some fun. I was like, yeah, no, it ain't fun, dude. Uh, that's why I'm deaf now. But. Um, yeah, what were you asking me on that I totally about? Out. About <laughs> whether Afghanistan in when
1: you were there in oh four oh five, whether or not there were already some signs of cracks in the foundation.
0: As- no, I didn't see them at the time, man. I mean, the things that I was looking at was like, well, you know, I, I what I noticed right away was I knew there was some tribalism. You know, you got the shoot this all the the different sects in um, Iraq, but there were the, the, there was a lot more tribes and disconnects and local chiefs and this and that and it made it i was like man this is gonna be a hard one dude like and the first thought in my head was like well the russians were here for 10 years we're not gonna be that stupid and and like i tried to occupy for like another 10 like 10 years so when i was doing all this stuff everyone was talking at that time oh three oh four oh five dude this is gonna dry up soon man like it's gonna be over you know dude went on for 20 years yeah right I could have done that, you know, in hindsight, I would have just continued to do it, you know, but those times, like Afghanistan for me was a better experience in the sense of like, I was, I've already had figured out the first location and now I was going somewhere completely new. Once again, throwing my, thrusting myself into an uncomfortable position. I was like, I haven't been here before. Other dudes have been here, several deployments. And so you're kind of looking at them to kind of educate you, like, hey, here's where you need to go. Here's where you want to stay away from. And a lot of that was travel for us in the sense of, like, you got to rely on the guys, the OGs, you know. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I guess I was one of those OGs, you know. When I went to into Iraq, there was nobody there, you know, like, to get education from. We just learned. Me and all the, the, the awesome dudes I work with, we just— had to figure stuff out and pass that along to guys, you know? But, um, did you see like at that point in
1: Afghanistan, was there no, any noticeable Taliban presence or were they pretty
0: much just totally? In the oh hills? yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Kabul and then on the road, of course, um, like going up to Bagram or some of the Ford operating bases. But, uh, yeah. I mean, we were dealing with those people, um, sometimes directly. And, um, so yeah, I knew they were there and, um, it was good to take some of those people off the street, you know, or help in some regard. That was kind of, you know, a good thing. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I didn't get involved with the people quite as much that I did in previous, you know, like in Iraq, mm. you know, People are pushing tea on you, and you're like, What's your angle? <laughs> like, I'm not drinking this, dude. <laughs> and then I started drinking it as time went on. I was like, Hey, you guys got any of that tea? You know, stuff without poison? That'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah,
1: I might have the wrong shit in there <laughs> for sure. I mean, I, one of the things I, I've never really asked people about, because I don't know how relevant it's been to some of the people I've had on here, but like you did mention it, at least in passing a little bit ago, the, the poppy fields and the opium. In Afghanistan, you know, I've I've talked with some people before who I haven't seen the pictures, but they mentioned like, oh yeah, I have pictures of me standing in front of all this fucking pot, like miles and miles of poppy, and and
0: yeah, like the ODAs, the yeah. one over there. I mean, they're psh, I've seen some crazy photos. <laughs> so
1: how much like you know, everyone gets their conspiracy hat on and thinks about like international crime syndication or or syndicates and and how. You know, obviously the poppy, it runs from multiple places around the world, but it it stayed running out of there. But like how much of that was locked down versus like the government slash military knew that like, all right, there's a criminal element that is running this stuff to other countries and it's just
0: not our problem. So we're
1: not going to deal with it.
0: Um, I I don't want to comment on it because I don't have enough information to be relevant to like an intelligent, you know, which is going to somebody out there is going to be like a conspiracy theory though <laughs> I never I never was like involved with the uh on the drug scene um over there whether it was like you know especially opium but a lot of the ODAs and guy friends of mine that um continued on and spent time in Afghanistan yeah man they were doing I mean that was their sole focus they were burning stuff and
2: yeah
0: you know destroying things or taking down a lot of those um those those places but yeah never really got into it too much
1: so you're there 0405 did wh- when did you like when did
0: you officially retire and leave the game well then I, I did like i got a good good sense of iraq good sense of afghanistan and then i um it was kind of a like a thank you for your service like tour um an opportunity came up in uh in israel Mm. do some work in like uh, you know at that time there was a bombing Uh, State Department lost um, some guys I forget what year it was Um, but going into Gaza was really dangerous and there was an IED there that that killed some people and they shut that down right before I got there we had that that uh, IED and so we would go to the other areas like you know could be Ramallah or Bethlehem they're Palestinian controlled territories and it was cool because you go to work, you go into those badlands, you get all kitted up, do your thing. Then you come back and you're like, it's the equivalent of being in New York, you know, it's like downtown Jerusalem and you're just chilling, yeah. going to a pool, um, going somewhere to eat. And you don't have to be like super high threat profile because it was fairly safe outside of those areas, which was um completely different environment than coming from Afghanistan or Iraq, where you have to be switched on 24 seven right yeah so i wasn't used to that you know not having to be switched on all the time even when you're sleeping you know you're getting mortared or whatever you know it's it's pretty common um so being in there it was awesome man you know um food was good you know it was just a good experience a lot of a lot i learned a lot of about culture over there um and history um what
1: what do you make of the whole israel palestine thing and how i mean that you know it goes back thousands and thousands of years but it's it's like the hardest question to solve it seems like
0: yeah man i mean what do you do when you're surrounded by all people that want to take you out you know it's for me it was it was kind of i had some dealings with people like on the palestinian side of the house and then i dealt with some other people on the uh you know outside in Jerusalem on the street and I was like man you can't it's kind of hard to win hearts and minds when you know they they put all these um giant chicanes it was basically concrete walls all the way around these areas and so some of the Palestinians have to cross over to see their family members that might be in Israel and you know, when you talk about this, it sounds big, but these places are small, man, Compared mm. to, for comparison to our country, right? And the way that they, they have to wait in line and, yeah. you know, they put walls up to basically just divide them to keep, you know, people in Israel safe. But I'm like, is that sustainable? That, look at the Berlin Wall. Like, it's very yeah. synonymous with that. That's what it felt like. It was like walls and people waiting in line. They're always unhappy. Um, cause you don't have the supply chain, um, isn't flowing like it does in Israel for the Palestinian, you know, people. So I looked at it from a different optic because oppression is, is bad no matter what. I'm not a big fan of oppression because yeah. that leads to, to hate and discontent and then yes. people will rise up. Yes. So I think, I don't know what it's like now. Um, I've been back several times as a civilian, um, which was interesting for work. And um, I just have a different viewpoint on that because of what what I saw from my optic, you know, not from what I'm reading about politics and policy. I was just seeing it firsthand. I was like, man, I don't know, man. Some of these guys that I think are the bad guys are actually cooler than the people that I'm kind (laughs) of trying to represent, you know?
1: It's interesting when you start... You know, obviously, I've never been. I don't have that experience on there. But just reading the tea leaves and and hearing the different perspectives, a lot of what you just said right there resonates because, you know, I I don't have a dog in the fight or anything. I have tremendous empathy for for both sides as far as how difficult of a situation that is. And and I think there's been wrongs on both sides for sure over the years. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, to what point now that Israel does at least have – some allies in the area you know there there are friendly countries be it Jordan Egypt things like that where it's like at what point do you have to start saying we have some some human rights issues we we got to yeah. deal with here and at what point do you start saying like ooh is there is there an even if it's unintended is there an apartheid element going on here you know you just said it best where when people are oppressed, that breeds some hatred and, yeah. and leads to bad things. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of ways. And it's hard for me to not understand where some of that anger is coming from when I, when I look at the Palestinians like – they didn't, they didn't ask for this, you know, it's, it is, it is a tough, and like you get in trouble even talking about it or bringing it up. It makes me very uncomfortable. It's I feel like it, I stay away from. I feel like you're from, setting me up
0: again, you know? I'm not, I'm not, but
1: I'm trying to like take all the heat on my own end off you, but
2: it's, it's just a, it is It's tough super one, complex.
0: Man. I mean, all these things that we're talking about, you know, which kind of, you can dovetail the withdrawal in Afghanistan, that shit show that just occurred, um, Look, some of these things are are in your face, you know, like we're talking about a very complex geopolitical issue between the, you know, Palestinian. There's a ton of history there. I'm Mm -hmm. no expert on any of that, but I'm an expert on oppression and I know what it does. And I feel like, you know, people need to be, to feel the freedom to be able to spread their wings and be successful and not concentrate on doing bad things to other people. Yeah. And, um this latest withdrawal in Afghanistan is a, is a good dovetail. I was never a big fan of occupying that for 20 years and losing more, you know, it's, it's an unconventional warfare, uh, war that we were fighting super complex. There's not a lot of infrastructure. It's very tribal, a lot of complexity, but what I have a huge problem with was how we conducted the pullout in Afghanistan. It was atrocious If you take a layman off the street with no military background and and you say, hey, we're going to we made a we made a political decision, which I didn't have a problem with, a withdrawal, but like, hey, let's why don't you listen to your team, you know, being the military advisors, generals, the guys that are boots on the ground, that are living that environment day to day, and say, let's plan a good time to do this. There's never going to be a great time. But what's the last thing that we pull out? The guys with guns, because we need to protect, you know, the women, children, the NGO workers, they should be the first ones to come out. The last people to go, you know, once you secure all your equipment and sensitive items, we're not leaving, you know, making them the third world largest, you know, a terrorist organization. The Taliban became like, I think it was like bigger than Australia's military, like one day after. Billions of dollars worth of high tech equipment, night night vision goggles and things like that. Absurd. Absurd the way they the um the administration handled that. Um it was gonna fall regardless. I don't think there's much you could do. It doesn't matter who was in power at the time, but we could have done it in a way with the Tet Offensive, I mean, if you look back at history, which all oh, wasn't that long ago especially as guys in office. Can you um, explain the Tet Offensive to people who aren't familiar? Well, when we withdraw if you look at the historical photos that burn images in the people's mind. Saigon. You know, yeah, Saigon, the mm-hmm. fall. You know, towards the end of the war, it was just a, a melee of people trying to jump into helicopters to get the hell out because there was no proper planning. Right. And, you know, it just was a shit show. And that's what the people were holding on to the freaking aircraft falling to their death. Yeah. Because they were so desperate to get out of there, because we left sixty thousand assets, people that supported us and fought with us, and we just left them there hanging. They're going to get murdered. Their families are going to get murdered. Their kids are going to be raped. Did you? Did some of
1: your friends and guys you had served with were they part part of the people who? There was a bunch of this where guys were going back in there on, there, yeah. on the court accord yeah, to man. save the assets. I was
0: already um I already had my my uh, my surgery on my leg, so I I mean. I actually thought about going um, back over. (laughs) I was so pissed off, man. I was like, I'll go with a freaking titanium leg, dude, and hip. Holy shit. And so there was a bunch of us that were working behind the scenes trying to help assets get, you know, we're trying to keep people that supported us. That could be special operations. That could be, doesn't matter, the military, our government. These people, we said we were going to get your back, you know, and- so we're trying to get some of these people out safely, you know. Um, you hear about, like, Tim Kennedy. Was, yeah. You know, and a bunch of bunch of dudes were working through back channels, pulling resource where we could to get people out of, out of uh, Afghanistan safely. And you
1: were thinking about going over there. Dude, if
0: I could, man. With stage I still four cancer. <laughs> oh, <Yo>, yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, it's just physically I, I knew I had to – you know i had to make that assessment i'm like look i could be more of a hindrance do more harm than good because of you know this thing's not tested you know my hip my glute my quad and i had it all and my femur taken out so if i need to carry somebody like i know i can do it but not like i used to be able to do it mm. and um so i just tried to help behind the scenes you know where i could because i was so pissed off at the, at the at the way you know Talking to everyone else that that served in Afghanistan, I was like, dude, we knew it was was inevitable that there's going to be a regime change, the government's going to fall, Taliban's going to rise back up, sure. But let's not make it easy for them.
1: Let's not give them
0: everything. Yeah, don't give them freaking military surplus, you know, to fight us again. It's crazy. It's like,
1: and, and you would think... Because I, I am glad we're not there anymore. Obviously, none of us, including people in the military, wanted to see these endless wars. So it's not good that you were still in a goddamn country 20 years on. Yeah. But like you said, there is a way to effectively manage this and do it. correct. If you're going to finally actually commit to doing it, good. Glad <laughs> we're doing that. Now do it correctly and take care of these people because, by the way, you know it's a precedent thing too. Not just for, oh, people will be like, oh, America will just leave somewhere. But
0: to your point, like the assets. Because now
1: (laughs) in in the future you go. Think about
0: it. Who's going to help us in the future? Exactly. Oh, yeah, let me help you so you can leave me hanging. Right. Work for Team USA. Yeah, okay. (laughs) So, you know, that's my one, you know, a lot of guys were frustrated on the way things were conducted. And I'm not trying to Monday. This isn't a Monday morning quarterback thing or, you know. I'm sitting here no, going, that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> it's not this isn't a hindsight's 2020 this was like super apparent yes for pretty much the layman yes that this is way you, you don't handle that kind of situation but yeah
1: now you you were in israel in 06 07 it sounds like something like that uh most of 06 and you said that there was a tour like you you did some
0: other places too like what what other places did you go well to? that was the, the the kind of like you know um the cherry on top. Yeah, it was it was just a good good opportunity and I hadn't been there and I was like, yeah, I want to try that next, you know. Cuz it was only the three areas that were um kind of hot at the time, you know. And um so when did you get out? Like when did so you So that leave? was my last year in the 06. So I was partnered with a uh, my buddy Ron introduced me to uh a good friend of mine, John, who was from SEAL Team 3. He was a former SEAL frogman. So he became my partner in Iraq and him, uh, he and my buddy Ron and another one or two guys started an armored vehicle company based on, we were noticing like, you know, I think that it was like the second time I got blown up. I was like, okay, this is pretty apparent that the profiles that were running, it's, um, you know, it's leading to engagement because we stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, we're, we have big targets on our vehicles. Are you allowed so, to
1: say what happened when you were blown up, or is that
0: classified? Um, well, was a couple. You know, like a couple instances. You know, my my first vehicle ambush was when I was in SF. You know, I was in Africa and got stitched up. It wasn't like a military engagement. It was we just driving down the road and. Some local, uh, they turned out to be military, but I didn't know it at the time because it was dark. And I was in a soft-skinned vehicle, and they just, like, lit us up, you know. It was like, oh, I'm awake now, dude. <laughs> what the fuck was that? Fuck. <laughs> and it just, like, stitched up the side of the vehicle with an AK. And we ended up rolling. Um, I ended up, you know, basically uh, eliminating the threat. I was driving the vehicle, part of the reason we probably crashed in hindsight. <laughs> 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 and. You know, I had a fanny pack on, dude, so I get made oh, fun fanny of. pack. Yeah, I don't really like. They're back now, by the way. I, don't I know, know Joe that. Rogan's bringing them back. I'm like, dude, I don't know, bro. Joe Rogan's wearing fanny packs? Oh, hell yeah. He rocks fanny pack, dude. I haven't seen that. He probably has a fanny pack company, I don't know. I was talking Google about
1: it. all like the all like the uh some of the like streetwear stuff where where they got, I mean, they're wearing satchel versions too. Let's get this right. But the 90s are coming back, man. I don't know. Don't bring a f-
0: uh, actually actually <laughs> I got, got one. Yeah, right there. Uh, it was the gift. It was a uh, gift. Just a gift. Yeah, uh, it's convenient.
1: So so I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. But you were you were talking about one of the blow-up
0: situations where you were driving. yes yeah, so, so <clears throat> in my time, you know, it was funny because we weren't in like a combat setting per se. It was a high 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 risk. But when you're working in Africa, you're thinking like I don't want to get my malaria. I don't want to get dengue Mm -hmm. fever. Like, everything can kill you in Africa. It is a crazy, it's probably the worst place I've ever been, um, is North Africa. And um, so, you you know, we're we're there doing good things, helping, you know, win hearts and minds, do demining, counterpoaching. And, you know, you're just driving down the street one night and then get stitched up. And I was in civilian clothes, which was crazy. And I only had two teammates with me. Um, And uh a PA and uh who was a military and then two NGOs that were working for uh the UN. And uh yeah, it was dicey dude. <laughs> My first one. I was as a young guy. I was like twenty six, twenty five. <clears throat> and I just didn't want to get in trouble. I was like, I said I just shot that dude. <laughs> I'm totally gonna get in trouble for this. <laughs> we got to write up a report. I mean I'm gonna get chewed uh, out. <laughs> I don't know how this works. It's like a <laughs> second deployment dude. Um so it was kind of like from my perspective i was just a young operator i was like i don't want to get i don't want to get kicked out of the military i did something you know i was just trying to protect the dudes because they we were in a toyota ambulance and so it only Mm. had a front driver door and a front passenger the rest of the dudes were in the back and uh so when we got uh stitched up i just named it the muzzle flash i had my joe rogan fanny pack on (laughs) hey it was effective dude bred a nine millimeter also (laughs) not the best choice of firearm for (laughs) special operations but anyway i just unzipped it and aimed through the window at the muzzle flash i just happened to hit the guy like pretty much center mass i was like nice shot but the the shooting stopped that's all you know at the time i I wasn't seeing all this you know unfold that quickly i was just like hey bad guy's shooting at me uh mongo shoot back yeah so like he ended up shooting the front tire out is why we lost control But we ended up going into, like, this huge drainage ditch and rolled twice. So the guy sitting next to me, my captain, he got ejected or knocked out. And uh, I changed mags, which was the only reason I eventually saved my life because I was smart enough to change mags because I dumped, I don't know, probably half a mag. And I I climbed out the window because the vehicle was stuck up in the air. So my captain was knocked out, not in the seat everyone else was in the back so i just figured he got ejected or something so i got out and used the the vehicle was sticking up in the air and i used the front for cover and concealment where the engine was and i see all these dudes walking down dude i'm like damn it i have the worst luck <laughs> i'm like the new guy I'm like you know captain is the most senior guy he's knocked the fuck out so i'm like hey I'll yell back to my buddy Walt who's on my team like, hey, bro, what do you want me to do, man? There's like five <laughs> dudes online with, I think two or three of them have belt feds, man. And we're stuck in, you guys are pinned in the vehicle. We can't get out the back door. And I got to keep trained on this cat. And like they're walking down the street and they're maybe like 50 to maybe a hundred meters because it was dark. There's no street lights. Yeah. I could see them. I was like, fuck. And he's like, yeah, this whole fast, dude. So anyway, long story short, this whole thing turned into like this uh, crazy situation where, they all came around and surrounded us, and they put AKs to our heads, and I had a pistol to one of Jeez. their heads. So we're all like, we all have guns to each other's heads, and we were standing there for like literally in a, probably two hours. You know, trying to deconflict and de-escalate the situation. Did you have a language barrier going on? Fuck yeah, Yeah. dude! Nobody spoke no French, no English. No, I'm like, hey, like, and all they cared, they're like, who shot our guy? And I'm like, hey, motherfuckers, like, I know I'm the new guy. Don't throw me under the bus, right? (laughs) (laughs) And then you know, my buddy Walt was laughing because he was just like, no, dude, and so yeah they wanted us to give up our weapons and that was the the sticking point and mm-hmm. i'm the new guy so i'm like hey i ain't giving them shit they're gonna fucking kill me dude yeah like, they're gonna yeah, kill all of us well. so we ended up you know it's kind of a crazy situation but like um it all it kind of worked its way out you know i think that was like two in the morning through like 5 30 in the morning with guns to each other's heads oh uh, well there was so after the guns got you know we sent them, showed them a letter. I was like, this is from your president. They're like, <laughs> they tore it up, dude. I was like, no, this is, it says, this is, you know, we're here on behalf of the US government. We're trying to help your people. And they went, ksh, ksh. and I was like, oh, that's bad. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm pretty sure this is bad. And then they're like, who shot our guy? I was like, I don't know. Shoot, like, no one yeah, shoot. Yeah, well, Who shoot? <laughs> what, yeah, who, who shot, uh, who shot a meme, No one, man? No one shoot. So, finally, the decision was made to not my decision I was highly against it and just you know we're at a stalemate and they were, we're outgunned gave up weapons and then And they know, let you go no they didn't let us go they kind of did like a little mox execution on us <laughs> at least that's the way I remember it but they they kind of marched us down to there was like these I don't remember how many dudes maybe five dudes um you'd think I'd remember that stuff how many of you three um or, armed well you only, said NGO two NGOs there's only two uh really two of us me and my uh um our uh you had the PA your partner and then the two yeah, NGOs it was, so it was Walt myself and then my captain was knocked the fuck out so we were only three carrying but we only had pistols the crazy situation And ever since then I'm like I'm always going freaking heavy dude. yeah because you know, it was this supposed to be a short trip you know, threat profile was very low. We're just kind of going on, night, you know, down down the road. And uh, anyway, they, put, they they walk us over, and there's clearly the leader. You know, he's behind a belt-fed machine gun with his, his little nug, you know, his little guy, you know, training it. And they put us, made us sit down, you know, like in front of this fucking belt-fed machine gun. And they're like, yeah, I don't remember. I said, all I remember is, like, I told my buddy Walt, Walt on my team, I was like, I said something about having a spider I was like, I have a spider dude.
2: <laughs> should oh, we just
0: go for it? Like a knife, like a oh. like a folding knife. I was like, should we just go for it? And he's like, shut the fuck up, dude. Like it's all gonna work out. I like, <laughs> ah, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I'm on my knees. Yeah, and we're gotta, sitting on our knees. I feel in front like of we're gonna get executed, gun. I'm okay. pretty sure. Um so anyway, it was just a kind of a crazy situation that uh you know, and, So they just left. They they said cool Yeah, well what happened was somebody we had two native speakers uh spoke French. So half these guys spoke Arabic, the other half spoke French. My French was not up to par for a conflict of this size. <laughs> so they ended up um recognizing uh who we were. Somebody knew one of the NGOs that was with us. They were just rapping the whole time and speaking French. And I was like, man, this is a bad situation. It could have been very bad. And they actually, when they took my gun, they started smelling the barrels. My gun was hot. I had, oh, meaning, I had a round in the chamber, it was on fire. And since I switched mags, I had a full mag, and they were finger on the trigger, guys smelling it. And I was like, <laughs> Like I hope bitch. this thing goes off in your face, dude. <laughs> like you just ruined my night. Should have been like, yeah, it was me, motherfucker. <laughs> but they, they checked the mags too. That's why it saved me because they're like they just wanted to know who who did it. And I was like, everyone had full mags. I just dropped I dropped it on the uh, on the floorboard when oh, I, I when shit. I got out the window. I climbed out the window and I changed mags while I was transitioning, just to instinctually, you know, from training. That saved you, know? you, yeah, man. It's pretty crazy. So they ju- did they just, like, say, okay, go? Yeah, they're like, have a good day. And we're like, okay. <laughs> so then I'm like, the, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. It kind of brought me back to my childhood with my dad, right? it's like, oh, I'm so in trouble. Why are you going to get in trouble for something,
1: though, where you get shot well, at? Well, like- because
0: I was a new guy, you know? I was, like, maybe my first deployment. And people had been getting, like, there was other, a couple ODAs that had gotten in trouble, like, drinking or whatever. So I was just like uh yeah like i just want to keep doing what i'm doing i like the situation wasn't bad to me very explainable um but i didn't want to i was like man i don't want to have to go through this whole i mean they flew like people They un put a protest in the the Chadian government um mm. the united nations protested the u.s government protested like it was a big over this yeah because it was like i i shot oh, a shit. military dude I the dude was in the mil. We found out these people were actually in the uh, in the military at the time, so I was like, kind of worried about that. You know, it's an international incident. It could be um, Jesus, but it all kind of went away. I think, yeah, thankfully. probably
1: because they shot at you. I mean, hey, dude, you shoot at me, I'm going to shoot back. That bro. is what it is. You like, know? 100%. misunderstanding something, but that's that's crazy. So. But towards the end, like you were saying, to go back to it, you were in Israel, and then was that the last stop on that, and then you came back home, retired?
0: Yeah, I didn't retire because I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't fully, uh, I was contracting at the time, so I just stopped working. And I I, I switched, I transitioned to uh, armored vehicles. I got back in, I got into the defense market. Mm. So my buddy, uh, John Zinn, was introduced to me by ron so we were partners back in the day um in iraq he was a seal yeah and he was a seal my buddy ron we went through sf together so we already known each other and he brought me in uh when i went to uh oga he kind of opened the door he said hey you can talk to these people and there's some cool stuff if you want to get involved i said heck yeah so they got um they started an armored vehicle company the early they stopped contracting before me and I invested in the company thinking, you know, they're like, Hey man, they called me up and I said, yeah, man, whatever I can do to help. And it actually led to an opportunity to come in as a PM or a program manager. And I had no understanding of the, the defense base at this time. I just knew that, you know, what armored vehicles were the the business cases for the company that we were starting. And I kind of worked my way up, you know, in four years, we went from 26,000 square feet with a bunch of people from monster garage, you know, making a prototype in California to 68,000 square feet in North Charlotte. And then eventually we had 300,000 square feet on 34 acres, um, in, uh, South Carolina in Fort mill. And it was just like three or four Neanderthals <laughs> just working your ass off and sleeping in the office every day and just figuring it out like how are we going to take this to the next level so eventually we sold the company to private equity the guys mm-hmm. did I didn't um, I was just running the armored vehicle um, business at that time I got my business degree started working on my master's and then uh, was doing a bunch of automotive courses like Lean Six Sigma courses and project management like high-level and um, were you dealing with any, uh, just
1: from all this? I mean, we're talking, you basically spent years and years in high level situations. You've already laid out all the danger you were in all the time. Like were you having any trouble
0: with PTS or, or things like that? No, I think I, I think I might have been like I wasn't comfortable around people like when I started when I transitioned out and started becoming a PM. I knew everybody, you know, like thankfully what made the transition, a lot of guys have struggle getting out of the military because you're losing that, those friendships and yeah. you're going into like, you know, an environment that you're not accustomed to. And a lot of guys struggle with that. It's super common and you really got to have a good social support system in place and uh, have a good plan, you know, that, that definitely helps. But the guys, I already I was partners with with, with um, John and I knew Ron from back. Shoot, we went through Special Forces Q course together. And then we were also in Iraq together um, working for other people. And um, then he brought me into that. And so everything was kind of jiving. We're just, it was a very difficult situation, you know, professionally because, you know, you're leading – It's a very high-stress environment. You're making life-saving technology for people, you know, and I knew what that was like because it saved my life. More than one occasion, I got blown up in armored vehicles. Mm. And so I knew it was a lot of pressure because of that. And so everything was going well. The company went went to the private equity group came in and, and acquired the company to kind of help us. We actually had three companies and a management company. And I had, six. I think it was like 60 employees or 65 employees at the time. So John goes on, John Zinn goes on a routine business trip to Amman, Jordan. Oh. Shit. And, yeah, it was kind of crazy. So we were all young, man. He was only 32 years old. I, I believe that's his age. Um, my, my memory's not the best. Keep that mic tight. Sorry. So, you know, one night... John goes on the business trip. He goes to, I think it was Sofax. Um, it's a special operation uh, exp- exhibition where defense companies come in in Amman, Jordan, and they showcase their wares for military groups from around the world. It's a very big show. And this is 2011? It's 2010. Okay. So it was like May, I think it was. So he'd been over there for a day or two and we had other guys in our, in our company. It was uh, called Indigen armor. Um, we had several people that I had worked with in the past, some from GRS and we had some guys from like the seal community and they're all very reliable people. So my phone rings about three o'clock in the morning and I pick it up and it was another, uh, business owner. And, um, uh, he was he pad, patched around on. I said, "Hey, what's going on, bro? It's like three thirty in the morning. I knew it was bad." And he's like, "You got to you got to hold on for the private equity guys. They they want to be on the call." And I was like, "What the fuck, dude? Like we've known each other for, you know, been overseas and all this stuff. What what do you mean? Like you call me at three thirty in the morning? I want to know what's up because I just I just kind of knew I knew." And um, he, he, anyway, he go, comes on and he goes, "Yeah, John's John's dead." And I'm like, "What?" what the fuck do you mean he's dead? I just talked to him yesterday and I didn't really put a lot of, cause we had situations in the past where we had, I worked with a guy named Tex that was his call sign. We all had call signs. And, uh, you know, one time I think I was working with him, I think, but somebody called back to, to Texas and to, to his wife and was like, hey, sorry, Texas is dead. Well, it turned out to be another text. Oh. So our rat network is so fast that it's mind-blowing. And that's how information was relayed back in the day. It was kind of like there wasn't a... F- <sighs> the official channels took forever. So you're always getting it from somebody that knows you. So I'm like, are you sure? Are you 100% that he's deceased, man? What happened? So...
2: All right, that is the end of part one of what will be two parts of Chris Cather's. I was on camera with Chris for about four and a half hours, so there's no way I was going to put out an episode that long. So we will be releasing part two one week after this episode is released. So if you're watching this episode more than a week later, the link is down in the description below. Chris and I will be discussing his very brave battle against what is terminal stage four cancer, as well as how he got it, how a lot of his buddies in the Special Forces got it due to some of the things that they were exposed to overseas. It's very sad, it's very heavy, but Chris is a real inspiration because he is facing it with so much bravery and matter-of-factness, too. I mean, the, the guy is absolutely awesome. So, looking forward to part two, and I hope you guys will tune into that as well. That said, as always, give it a thought, get back to me. Peace.